an American woman, a woman living in the United States of America, which is where we live, is on average will live to the age of, well, actually last year it was 81. It declined by a full year in the past year, likely due to COVID. So on average, 80 years old, but is seeing diminished fertility already in 20s, 30s and and in in the 40s as well. And so it's really important for us to be aware of this and that this has to do with that mismatch between the world that we live in and our reproductive biology. And so this is again why I said it's partly a remembering and it's partly learning a new way. Hey, check it out. I want to ask you something. Are you a mom or a mom-to-be or even a couple who's planning on having kids someday? Well, if so, this is going to be a game-changing episode for you. So listen up and make sure to stay through the conclusion because the information presented is incredibly powerful and paradigm-breaking when it comes to all things pregnancy, birth, kids, etc. This is episode 378, The Myths of Infertility, Primester Power, and Creating Super Babies with Dr. Cleopatra hosted by yours truly and co-hosted by my partner and someday mother-to-be, Allison Charles. You can find the show notes for this episode at lukestory.com slash Cleopatra. That's lukestory.com slash Cleopatra. Our guest, Dr. Cleopatra, is the founder and chief scientific officer at the Fertility and Pregnancy Institute. She's a scientist and tenured University of Southern California professor who pioneered the field of fertility biohacking and creating super babies. To date, Dr. C has scientifically studied tens of thousands of women and families and has helped women in 23 countries on six continents to have their super babies using the Primester, the magical and powerful window of opportunity before pregnancy, when we literally have the power to change the quality and expression of the genes that we pass down to our babies and grandbabies. And due to her expertise and massive heart, this was one of my favorite episodes ever. I mean, I say that every time, right? Each one is like, oh man, this was the, this was the one. And they kind of all are. But when it comes to this particular topic, uh, I learned so, so much as a man. I mean, I'm just, I realized, wow, I'm clueless. So thank God I did this interview. I've done a few about birth and birth trauma and things like that, natural childbirth. And I continue to explore this topic more as it's obviously an interest of mine at this time in my life. But uh, this one was really special, of course, because Allison was there and it's, you know, it's kind of a, it's in the works, right? There's things happening here and I really wanted to learn about it. So very excited to have this opportunity. And I want to say if by the end of this episode, you want to explore her work, Dr. Cleopatra has kindly offered a $300 discount for Lifestylist listeners. If you go to fertilitypregnancy.org. That's fertilitypregnancy.org. Use the code LUKE300 and you'll get a $300 credit toward the Primester Protocol, a program she has going now. And uh, I'm going to be doing this program myself, actually, with Allison. I think we just got our login and we're about to kick it off here soon. So can't wait uh, to join you guys there. And here is a brief sample of the topics covered with Dr. C and Allison. And if you're a man, listen up, dude. Please do yourself and your family a favor and give this a listen. As I said, I learned a ton and uh, I'm going to continue to do so as I go on through her trimester course. So, so, so man, don't be scared, man. This is important stuff. And I found it to be just fascinating, of course, because I, I love my lady and uh, I love moms. I love my mom. And it's just incredible when you start learning about the biology of the female body and what it's capable of. It's just, it's insane. 
Super fun. So here's what we talk about. What a super baby is and how Dr. C helps families create them. How Dr. C's mother's passing during her birth inspired her mission to serve. The most common misconceptions about fertility. How mothers-to-be can avoid imprinting negative beliefs around age and fertility. Then Dr. C breaks down the fertility pyramid. The surprising root causes of not getting pregnant. Genetics versus epigenetics. Dr. C's thoughts on conscious conception, the importance of regulating hormones before getting pregnant, how to fix estrogen dominance, the importance of pre-pregnancy lab work for metals, parasites, and glyphosate, etc. The influence of a mother's gut biome health and mitochondrial function, what to eat and not eat during the trimester and while breastfeeding, how men can best prepare for conception and sperm health, the best nutrients or supplements for mothers while pregnant, hospital versus home birthing and the role of a midwife or doula, the little known dangers of the non-ionizing radiation of ultrasounds, infant EMF exposure in hospitals, heart monitors, how to balance the stress of your masculine energy and career while pregnant, and finally tips for postpartum, aka the fourth trimester, and so, so much more. Today's sponsors are the following awesome brands. We've got Leela Quantum Tech. Man, I love this technology super spooky and badass. You can find that at leelaq.com. Then we've got earthechofoods.com slash Luke Story. Get on that cacao bliss, man. I take this stuff just about every day. It's it's my go-to cacao source. And then finally, magbreakthrough.com slash Luke for their incredible magnesium product. And again, remember, if you want to get on the pregnancy train, Go to fertilitypregnancy.org, use the code LUKE300, and Dr. C is going to give you a $300 credit toward the trimester protocol. Okay, that's enough out of me, guys. Let's go ahead and jump into the show and learn how to make us some super babies, because I think the world needs them now more than ever. Pass this one along in your social media if you feel so inspired. And without further ado, here is Dr. Cleopatra. Dr. Cleopatra, yes. here we are. You made it to Austin to hang out with me and Allison. Yay. I'm so excited to be here. I haven't been to Austin in over a decade, so it feels good to be here. Cool. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm so excited to have this conversation. It's been a long time in the in the works since yeah. you don't live here and you're passing through on your way to somewhere. So thank you so much for yes. making this stop. I find that the conversations are always so much more meaningful when we can sit down and yeah. share the air of the room. So thank you for making the time. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having uh, me. Yeah. And thank you, Allison, for being my co-host today. Yeah. You know, I I don't know if co-host will end up being the right term, but I'm here and I'm here to learn. And I, I did want to preface by saying that you know, oh gosh, how do how do I start this? And I won't take too long, I promise. But this is this is a really special, sacred chat. And so I do want to start just by sharing that, you know, I really had to feel in if I wanted to sit in on this. And I knew, I knew I did with you, but I'm 42. To the best of my knowledge, I've never been pregnant this lifetime. And so to now be with Luke and to have us, you know, to be having these conversations personally within our home, um, you know, I, I have never spoken to a doctor about this. I have never gone to a doctor's appointment about this. 
I have never asked questions about this. Like this world that we, this portal that we have just started to open up and that we're going to be diving into is a whole new world for me. And part of me wanted to just stay in my little isolated cocoon because I trust my relationship to source and great mother earth and my own wisdom and body. And I was like, you know what? Let me just be with that. But I thought, you know, if there's one doctor that I do want to hear from and hear an opinion from, it's you. So I'm here. But yeah, I just wanted to be honest out of the get-go. You know, it's a bit of a vulnerable place for me to be in. It's so vulnerable. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I I talk with my hands a lot and I'm I'm don't want to mess up the microphone. And I feel so much emotion listening to you because thank you for the honor and privilege of being here in this cocoon with you and, and stepping into this for the first time. And I'm so excited for you and I'm here to follow your lead and go wherever you want to go. I have zero agenda, so you can ask anything. There's nothing that's off limits to ask and you are safe here with me. And thank you for allowing yourself to be in this vulnerable place here with me. Mm. It means so much to me. Ah, thank you for sharing that. Yeah. And and that's that safe space that you hold um, is why I decided to say, say yes, you know, because, you know, we had Luke and I had chatted about it and I said, yes. And then I was like, you know, let me feel into it a little bit more. Let me think about it. And so it was a bit of a, a journey for me to get here. And then I promise I'll let you talk and have run your show, honey. But the last, <laughs> the, the last little thing that came up for me is I also really felt in when, when we both got clear that it was a yes for us. Yeah, of course, we're still a little nervous about some things, but yeah. it was a yes from him and a yes from me to, um, you know, we haven't actively started trying yet, but we decided we wanted to have begin to try to have this experience soon is my point. Then the next feeling in for me is, did I want to share about this publicly at all? Yes. Because that's a whole other big decision. So big. I got some clarity that I did, but what I started to notice, I literally only shared like two Instagram stories about getting my first box of prenatal vitamins. (laughs) And I know that people mean well, but the influx of do this, don't do that. I actually have a better brand. And I said to Luke, I'm like, oh my gosh, if I do share publicly about our journey with this, I'm just going to have to kindly with just pure heart, let people know that I'm really good with my own navigational system and for the experts who I do want to hear from, I'm already with them and thank you, but no thank you. Because I didn't know when it comes to pregnancy, ooh, child, (laughs) there is no place. So we all know that this happens in every single part of our lives, right? It doesn't matter what it is, business, your health, your wedding, your relationship with your mother, someone many people have opinions. And I would say that there's no place where this happens more than with pregnancy and giving birth and parenting. So this is the moment in life where you lean on your own internal navigational system, as you call it so beautifully, even more than ever. And you say, thank you. I love you. I appreciate that. And I'm really focused on where my heart and spirit are telling me to go. 
because you will be inundated and overwhelmed. And so there's no time like this that's more important than to turn inward. I completely support you on that and agree with you on that. And you know, Luke, when you introduced this episode, you talked about the importance of learning how to conceive and be pregnant and birth in a healthy way. And as as you said that I was thinking or remember how to do it, right? Remember how to do it because our, our ancestors knew And we today are learning how to remember and to bring in that wisdom, but also how to do it in a way that's healthy in the world that we live in today, because we don't live in the same world that they lived in. So it's, it's a remembering and it's learning anew and you deserve to have the right to learn anew on your own and through your own lens rather than through the lens of all of the opinions and perspectives coming at you. And you will feel it even more once you are pregnant. And then you'll feel it even more as you prepare to give birth. And you will feel it even more as your child is here in your arms. Why is that? Why is it when it comes to pregnancy specifically, there are more opinions than ever? It's such a great question. I think it's for a lot of different reasons. And one of them you touched on already, which is that it's very vulnerable. And when we feel vulnerable, we are more likely to look outside of ourselves. So I think that not everybody trust themselves as much as you do. And when we don't trust ourselves, we look outside of ourselves for answers and for solutions. And it's also for many people, the first time they're doing it, we all have a first time for doing it. Many of us don't do it very many times in our lives. We don't get pregnant many times. We don't give birth many times. And so it just feels so vulnerable and it feels so critically important to get right because we're laying this incredible foundation that doesn't just impact us. It doesn't just impact the children we're having right now. It impacts generations of our lineage. It impacts Mm. generations of this planet. Everything that we do as we're primestering, as we're preparing to conceive is going to be impacting the state and the soul of our planet well beyond our time here. And even if people don't know that to that extent or don't have the words for that, we understand the gravity and importance of it. And I think that that's why we feel so open to people's opinions. We feel so open to looking outside of ourselves and we feel so sensitive and rattled by the opinions. It's hard to trust ourselves in a world where we're not taught to do that. I think you touched on something with the piece about remembering. Yeah. And I think this is the conflict might be a strong word because, you know, we're in such an early stage of starting to move in this direction in our life. Uh, but at the same time, I mean, it's one is going to happen soon. Yes. Um, but looking at things from a paleolithic perspective and how all human beings got here, I lean more into the free birth, home birth, F the medical system. Totally. We've been doing it this way forever. We don't need all the things that are going to traumatize the yeah. mother and maybe the father and most likely the baby in the process. 
um, you know, I'm just being dramatic about it. Of course, obviously I might not even be here if I wasn't born in a hospital for all we know, we don't know that. Right. Yeah. But I think you said something that's really key in that sort of division of thought, because a lot of people that follow my podcast and I've interviewed a couple of people that are avid proponents of doing everything as natural as possible, but we do live in a different time. Mm-hmm. That's the thing we've yeah. got, you know, genetics are different. Epigenetics are different because of the way we've been living for the past few hundred, if not few thousands of years, so divorced from nature and in a world now where there's so many things that dysregulate our hormones and neurotransmitters and our entire biology is being affected uh, sometimes quite negatively by the environment, EMFs, toxins, whatever. So it's kind of, we're in an interesting time right now, right? Because there's a remembering, well, we just, the woman knows her body, she's going to know what to do when it happens, right? Yeah. But we're also not living on the land. We're also disconnected. And there's been a lot of interference with our biology going back a few generations. So I think that's what's intriguing about it for me, but also pretty complex because I see both sides of it. And I want to do the right thing for for us and, you know, a kid, if we have a kid, if that all works out, if it's in the stars, but also for the people listening, because there's very polarizing ideas about the right way to do this. And it's such an individual thing. And we're in an unprecedented time. Mm -hmm. There just isn't one way to do this thing called having kids. So that's my two cents on it to set us up for the I love it. Can I I just go with that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the first thing I want to say is that if someone can be objective, I'm objective. I'm a scientist. I'm trained to be objective. Obviously, I have my own personal preferences, but I really make a point of teaching from a place of of objectivity in the way that I was trained. And there, there's no more heart-centered scientist in the world. I'm probably the world's most loving scientist. And yet my brain is trained to work in a certain way. So everything that we teach, for example, at the Fertility and Pregnancy Institute and in the Primester Protocol, which is our system for conceiving, is all science-based. It's not about my personal experience. It's not about my opinion. So I just want to say that this is a great position from which to have a conversation that weighs both sides. And in addition to that objectivity, I have really integrated both extremes into my my own life and understanding. And so, you know, I will there's there's a lot to say. There's a lot to say when we think about what we've done historically as a human race, it's really important to remember that pregnancy and childbirth were among the most risky things that we could do and that women died all the time mm. in pregnancy and childbirth. And I have goosebumps. I, you know, I know this, I study this. I've been doing this for almost 25 years. I lost my own mother at birth, my own mother died giving birth to me. Wow. And my oh mother my was only 27 years old. She, I mean, I, I just turned 43 at the time we're recording this just a couple of days ago. And I have outlived my mother soon. It will be by 20 years. And I feel like my life is just starting. I cannot imagine how short her life was. It's so devastating to think of. And this was not 
hundreds of years ago. This was 43 years ago. And this was also not in the developing world. This was in America. My parents had just gotten to America and there were a lot of things working against her. She was a woman of color. We didn't have health insurance. She didn't speak English. So many things. But it's really important to remember that historically, this was a very risky thing because I think it's very easy to romanticize how we did it in the past. And yet our bodies know how to get pregnant. Our bodies know how to be pregnant. Our bodies know how to give birth and our bodies know how to nurse our children and raise our children. And so we have to be able and willing to hold both of those things when we have a conversation like this, when we're making these decisions for ourselves and for our own children and our own families. And and when we are providing information that may inform or guide another person's decisions. We know our truth. And I am sure that if my mother had been asked her truth, she would have been able to articulate in her language that she didn't have the knowledge, education, support, or resources to have her healthiest pregnancy or birth, which is a vastly different experience than the one I've had, thank God, birthing my own three super babies so far, three of them, that I did have, I do have the education, knowledge, support, and resources to have my healthiest pregnancies, my health, my healthiest chances of getting pregnant easily on the first try, even as an older woman, an older mom and having healthy births, even though still today, women of color in the United States are so much more likely to die giving birth. So we, we, we hold both of these things and we pay attention to what is our truth. And there's nothing that can overshadow that truth for us. And I think that that's really, really important to remember. So I don't want us to romanticize how things were because we, we can forget a lot of the detail of how things were that, that, at at the turn of the last century, the average life expectancy for a woman was 48 years old. And that's if she didn't die in pregnancy or childbirth. We have to remember that. And also there are so many things about our modern world that are mismatched to our reproductive biology that make it harder to get pregnant, stay pregnant, have a healthy pregnancy, have a healthy birth and nurse the way that we want to for as long as we want to and raise our children the way we want to. So it is a remembering of that innate wisdom of our own truth and our own knowing. And it's also a learning of a new way in this world that is so mismatched to our innate reproductive biology. Wow. Yeah, it makes sense. I've been into energetic healing technologies for many years, especially those that are supportive for EMF exposure. And there are a lot of so-called quantum products on the market, and I've tried just about any one I've ever heard of, but few of them have had any noticeable effect. 
However, there is one product line that's passed my test and become part of my arsenal, and it's called Leela Quantum Tech. Leela Quantum has developed a groundbreaking technology to increase your energy level, become more stress resistant, and also helps to support your whole family, pets, and garden with pure quantum energy. The Leela Quantum products have been certified and studied by various third-party institutes and doctors. And these studies have found significant improvements in people's blood, cellular voltage, allergy reduction, and heart rate variability. But my favorite benefit of all is that the Leela Quantum products help neutralize harmful frequencies, including any EMF like 4G, 5G, microwaves, and Wi-Fi. In fact, I have the Leela Quantum block in my kitchen where I charge my food, drinks, and supplements, as well as the Infinity block in my living room and here in the studio for a huge energetic upgrade. Leela Quantum Tech is a truly conscious business that wants to do good in the world and even plants a tree for every order. So if you want to hook up your energetic environment and have a tree planted on your behalf, you can go to leelaq.com and use the code LUKE10 to save 10% off your first order. That's L-E-E-L-A-Q.com and the discount code is LUKE10 for new customers. That was so powerful. I did not know that story. Your mother, what was her name? Miriam. Oh, Miriam. Miriam. Oh, gosh. I feel the power of that so deeply. Oh, my goodness. Do you think that um, that happening in your life, I mean, I, I can't imagine many more profound or powerful experiences to, to have your mother transcend into the other realm as you are incarnating into this earthly realm. That's beyond words powerful. Do you think that that experience played a role in shaping your calling and doing what you do? It's so intriguing. It was like God saying like, here you are. This is what you are meant to do. Don't get distracted. Keep going. We need you to be willing to be that insanely dedicated and devoted that only you could be coming from the beginnings of that experience to invest 80,000 plus hours of your young life in your fly 20s and 30s, not dating, not doing anything, (laughs) being, you know, very just right there focused and so committed 100%. And it's, it's really interesting. I was at the dentist recently and she came and she's telling me about the story she's reading. And she, she was like, can you imagine if you were the reason your mother died in the story, the, the mother died giving oh. birth to the child? And then she stopped and she looked at me and she's like, oh my God, you do know. She knows my story. She had forgotten in wow. that moment. And she said, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And we laughed about it. And yeah, there is something that words can't describe about knowing that you getting to have your life took your mother's life. And people ask me, is your birthday happy or is your birthday sad? And I would say my birthday is mostly happy, but for sure there's that recognition and awareness and that you are born with a deep sense of responsibility when you come into the world in that way. And my 
stepping into that responsibility has been a commitment that no other human being, no other child, no other mama, no other family has to know that responsibility Mm -hmm. of being responsible for losing the woman who was bringing them into the world. And that's how my work started. And when my work started, I didn't immediately know it was by focusing on the primester, the time before we conceived that we can be more likely to intercept any of these other negative things that could happen. I was just looking for the answers and soon came to understand that before is when we have much more power because we have so much more plasticity Mm. during that, that critical developmental window before we conceive, which we call the primester. So how long is that window? Because like I said, in the beginning, I've literally, I've never been pregnant and never consulted a single person. So I am starting from my first toe on the first step in this conversation right now. So how, what is the primester window? Yeah. Such an honor to be the person with you and the, and the both of you in this moment, because it's so sacred. It's so sacred to me, obviously, given the beginnings of my life, but it's so sacred for all of us. So the primester, we want to be 120 days. There are a lot of different scientific reasons for that specific number, including the process of egg maturation and how our eggs complete their maturation in the 120 days prior to being released in ovulation, or if we're going to be doing IVF or freezing our eggs, then in the egg retrieval process. So we want it to be 120 days minimum. We have lots of people who come to us very anxious who don't want to wait 120 days. We do an accelerated primester for them. But for most people, we want it to be 120 days we see a dose response relationship of primestering to fertility and pregnancy and birth outcomes. So if you want to primester for longer, because you know, you won't be ready to conceive for a year, two years, five years, then you can primester for longer. And that's wonderful. And I basically, I've been primestering my entire adult life and I'm always primestering. I step it way up when we're actually primestering for our super baby. We don't, we don't primester because we expect to have fertility challenges. We've never had fertility challenges. I just turned 43. My husband just turned 50. Our three super babies turned eight, six, and three in March, which I planned for them all to be born in the month of March. So I conceived on the first try with every single one of them as a quote unquote older mom. I was, I was turning 40 when the the youngest was born. And I expect that same thing. If we go for super baby number four, which I've been campaigning for, (laughs) my husband hasn't gotten on board yet, but I'm still campaigning. And so it doesn't have to be that just because we're farther along in our reproductive span, we're what the world considers to be older for parents, both female and male parents. It doesn't have to be that it's going to be hard. And the primester, we want to really 
regard as the magical and powerful window of opportunity that it is because mm. it's during this time that we have this malleability, this plasticity to change the expression of the genes that we pass down to our super babies and also our super grandbabies. So we use these epigenetic modifications to overcome fertility challenges if we're concerned about fertility challenges. And we have a lot of people who come to us because the majority come to us because of fertility challenges. So these same epigenetic modifications allow us to overcome fertility challenges or simply reproductive aging to slow and reverse our reproductive aging, which is possible. But we also use it just because it is that important to lay that strong epigenetic foundation for our super babies and for our super grandbabies. And we know from the scientific data that this process of passing down not just our genes, but our epigenome, our genetic expression, crosses at least two generations. We think likely more than two generations, but we know for certain two generations. So what do Luke and I need? Because we both play a role in this. And <laughs> Absolutely. I, and I know it's not just on my end. And it's 50-50. Yeah. At least. Yes. Well, this, that's funny you mentioned that because that's there's so many directions I want to go. And I have like 20 pages of notes here too. Um, it's just a topic I'm so passionate it's and exciting. curious about. First question is, why did you choose March? <gasps> That's such a good question. And people ask me that all the time. Are March babies smarter? What is it? So it's not, it's nothing that sexy. I promise. It's actually a very practical decision. I'm a tenured professor at the University of Southern California, and it works well with the academic calendar. So that's the only reason. And in fact, there are data that show that there may be better or more ideal months for our children to be born. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell talks about this in his incredible book, Outliers, and uh, how when we have our children such that they will be among the oldest in their age group, it gives them all of these developmental advantages so that they look like they're smarter, stronger, taller, better at everything that they try. And with being reinforced as being better, stronger, faster, you actually start to get better because you become more confident. So if you want to give your children those advantages, then you may want your children to be born around September 1st. They've just missed the cutoff for school and sports and other activities for the younger age group, which means they are the oldest in the, in the, in the next age group. And so they're for that age group, then they're the oldest for the next age group, which means that they're going to be the tallest, smartest, strongest, fastest, most coordinated. And that will be reinforced for them because that one year difference or even six month difference is huge when it comes to the development of children from one month to the next, one year to the next. So if you want to give your children advantages by choosing when they're born, you may choose September. But then if you have super babies, even when they're the youngest, they still are among the tallest, smartest, strongest, fastest, most coordinated, as is the case with mine. Not then I don't say that in a in a in a bragging way at all, but just it, it is you I mean you see it, it's incredible. So uh that would make them Virgos or Scorpios. 
too, right? So they're born in March. So they're. Oh, they're, no, no, not yours. It's oh, the September. Oh, the time. September. Oh. Yeah, yeah, sorry. So I believe it's Virgo. I believe it's Virgo. I, I get yeah. along with Virgos and Scorpios <laughs> really well. I was thinking about that the other day when I was listening to some of your interviews and you had them all in March. Uh, I don't know what sign March is. They, but. So they're, the first two are Aries. The third was supposed to be Aries, but he arrived a little, a couple of days early. So he's actually on the cusp, but he's got so much Aries in this sign and they're super athletic, which is very much an, an Aries thing. I've been into cacao for a couple decades. Now that's cacao, not chocolate. Been into that since I was born probably. But most chocolate is a pretty sketchy origin and full of sugar and sometimes even mycotoxins. I'm talking about the superfood cacao, the ceremonial grade stuff. The brand I use is from Danette May of Mindful Health and her company Earth Echo. It's called Cacao Bliss and it is insanely good. Cacao Bliss is made with 100% organic cacao beans that are naturally kissed by the sun, maintaining their miraculous health benefits. Then they blend the cacao with turmeric, MCT oil, coconut, Himalayan sea salt, cinnamon, and black pepper for the perfect mix to add to hot water or any other hot or cold drink. My go-to is usually pouring a scoop or packet of this stuff into my morning coffee. I actually made one this morning and chugged it on the road while running errands. Cacao Bliss does the cacao right. It checks all the boxes. It's paleo, gluten-free, keto, and even vegan. Well, mine's never vegan because I usually add grass-fed butter and colostrum to my hot drinks. But anyway, if you're ready to get down with some Cacao Bliss, it doesn't matter how you make it. It's always delicious and really good for you. It's your lucky day today right now because they are offering up to 15% off when you use the code LUKE15 at earthechofoods.com slash lukestory. That's Earth Echo Foods slash Luke's story. Or you can just click on the link in your podcast app show notes. You'll see the code Luke15 there too. Well, it's funny you mentioned September because I was thinking about that after hearing you did it in March. And I was like, okay, so what what sign would be cool if you could pick? And I thought, <laughs> yes. not to be narcissistic, but I really get along with other Scorpios very well. Yes. Uh, and Virgo. So I'm like, oh, cool. That actually is a, a good a good window there astrologically for whatever that's worth. Uh, but back to where Allison was kind of leading us there. For me, it's a little bit, there's, I don't know if it's a conundrum, but definitely something I have a lot of curiosity around. When you have a partnership and there's a male and a female, mm-hmm. I know where he's going with this. I <laughs> yeah, think. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's why you two are such an awesome pair because he uh, doesn't even have to finish his sentence. <laughs> well, let me finish for the audience that's not clear audience or whatever you're using on me. Um, it's the woman's body, right? She's going through all the things. Like, I don't want to have a goddamn baby, like yes. physically. Yes. Like, I mean, I have so much respect for females. I, I, I can only guess that I've been female in a few lifetimes. You know, maybe I remember that and it was rough, but I'm just like, whew, thank God I only have to make the donation. Yeah. Really, I mean, you know, physiologically speaking. Um, but being so into health and biohacking, I mean, I've been into this, as long as you've been doing what you're doing, I've been doing what I'm doing in, yes. in, a, in a different way, but as devoted to yes. all things alternative health and healing and detoxing and biohacking and all the things, 25 years. Yeah. And I've fixed so many things in myself and I'm so Incredible. vital and feeling awesome in all the ways as a result of all the things that I've done. But in thinking about a man who's really into health, knows a lot of stuff, but yet he's not the one having the baby. It's like, 
the boundaries there are a little <laughs> ambiguous to me because it's not like the male, you know, in my case can have no say or no rights. Like, oh yeah, just eat McDonald's and smoke cigarettes every day. And like, it's your body, your choice, right? that's how I live my yeah. life. No, no, I'm just saying, I'm using an extreme example exactly. of like what my worst nightmare would be. Like aspartame, GMOs, you Go know. Go like, get me a new carton yeah. of Marlboros. Sleeping with, <laughs> sleeping with your cell phone on your belly while you're pregnant. Oh, I mean, gosh. I can think of all the nightmarish things that would freak me out. But it's like, I find personally, because I'm super controlling, you know, it's something that I work on. It's also like a superpower and makes me control things that matter. And the outcomes are uh, often um, as neurotic as getting there might be. The outcomes are pretty awesome most of the time. So, you know, how does uh, a couple (laughs) find balance when they both deeply care about the outcome? Yet one of them kind of is more entitled to certain decisions, right? Like if I had it my way, I'd just say, if Allison said, whatever you want, honey, we'll do anything you want. I would likely have a totally different plan than she would if I gave her that same opportunity. So it's kind of a totally meandering question slash statement, but it's something I'm just like, how does this work? I love it. So first thing I want to say is I don't know many people who are super effective in themselves and in their lives who aren't very controlling. So that's number one. I think, I think that's, it can being more relaxed works for some people, but most people who are living the kind of life they've dreamt of for themselves are really going for it and really deliberately creating it. And I'm a strong proponent of that for creating our super babies as well. So when someone comes to me and says, well, we're not expecting fertility challenges. Can't we just have sex? and have a baby? I'm like, you can, but let's talk about what it's looking like in our world when people do that. It's it's not looking the way that we want it. The future isn't looking, the present isn't looking the way we want it, and the future isn't looking the way we want it. And we can talk more about that. In terms of what do you do as a couple when you might have different visions for an ideal pregnancy or how you get to the shared outcome of your super baby because you you share that in, in common. You want that. You want your super baby. We all want our super baby because when we get to have our super baby, it doesn't mean that my baby's better than someone else's or your baby will be better than someone else's. It means that we get to have our super baby. We get to have the healthiest, happiest, brightest, most well-adjusted baby that we can possibly have given our genome and our epigenome or our gene expression and that of the other person providing DNA for our super babies. And as we said, our super grandbabies, And we know that the egg and sperm are equal in the determination of that. But we also know that the epigenome continues to be shaped in utero and also in early, in the birth process and in early childhood. So at different points, one, the mother may, the person providing the egg and the womb may have more impact at certain points, but the overall impact is equal. And I just want to point out something that I think is really important because not everybody listening identifies as either male or female, and not everyone listening is in a heterosexual relationship. And so it's really important for me to say that at the Fertility and Pregnancy Institute, 
we love and honor and celebrate all gender identifications, all faces of love and family. And we, when we talk about egg and sperm or male and female, it's because we're talking about the biological process of conception, which requires egg and sperm, regardless of whom, whom we love and how we identify. So I just want to be really clear about that. When it comes to the union of egg and sperm through a, a loving relationship. So if if you're in a relationship where you can come together with the other person to create a, a baby, if if you're in a same-sex couple or you're single, then you might be using an egg donor or a sperm donor. That's a different kind of situation, right? But when it comes to the union of egg and sperm in the context of a loving relationship, number one, the good news is that we often choose a partner who has similar values, especially when it comes to the most important things in life. So it's not likely that you, Luke, would be having falling in love with and having a child with someone who smokes cigarettes and and eat, eats McDonald's. I mean, that's just the <laughs> yeah. bottom line. Not Definitely that not. not that we're we're knocking on anyone's choices, but yeah. it's not likely there that wouldn't you be compatibility. Would, exactly. Yeah. And yeah. even if you have, you know, the details are different. I used to smoke cigarettes, yes. by the way, for yes. the record yes. for like 15 years. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. Love me some cigarettes. Exactly. And so we uh we evolve, right? And you are partnered with the person who fits you today. And it's probably a good thing that you're not a partnered with the person who fit you 15 years ago, because they, they may not fit you today, especially if they didn't evolve with you. Right. So start, we start out more than likely we've chosen someone who is compatible, whose values are compatible with ours. And if the process to getting to that same value of our super baby, for example, would look different. It's just like anything else in life. It's a process of compromise and really trusting each other, trusting yourselves. So you trust this beautiful mama, Allison, to make great choices for herself and for your super babies. That's one of the reasons why you fell in love with her and decided that you you actually want to have a super baby or you want to have a baby. Whereas in the past, you may not have felt very inclined to have children at all. Part of it is your love and trust for her that makes you want to have a baby so that you, you can trust in her. You can trust in yourself and the choice that you made in her. And you can also trust in your own instincts to know what is yours and what is not yours. So you, you will know, and you will be right the majority of the time, maybe not a hundred percent of the time, but a, ma- <laughs> a majority of the time you will know when it's your domain that you you want to speak up about and when it's it's not really your domain and you need to just trust in the this beautiful human you've chosen and trust in the instincts and choices that she has and makes. Yeah. And I think most of the time you will trust yourself and you will know there might be a couple of times you don't get it right and you and you overstep and and she says to you I got this baby. Just trust me, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, I'm, I think part of his hesitation, which, you know, I know we don't have time and space to get into my whole backstory, but part of 
him wondering about this is because I come from a childhood where, you know, and again, let me preface, wouldn't change a thing. All is divinely perfect. But my childhood, my dad was my distance running coach. It was really extreme. I was national champion, you know, athlete. And like, so I was told what to do with my body, how to, you know, what to put in my body, how to train my body. And like, so after my body started to break down after being a college athlete, and I just, I didn't, what anyone had tell me what to do with my body. It took me the pendulum swing from extreme athletics, then went to the other extreme side of like, I, I need to let my body totally rest. And, um, and I did that for a very long time. I'm just now starting to exercise again. So I imagine (laughs) in his mind, it's like, okay, we're co-creating this super baby And he knows my sensitivity, especially to a male, you know, telling me what to do with my physical vessel. So let me just tell you, you know, I love that you have all of your sublingual squirts and (laughs) you should see him in the morning. I mean, 10,000 vitamins and like all these things. And I am, and I'm open to it. I'm not closed off. Like, I'm, I'm very much open and I will be excited to learn from you in this trimester, what are three examples of like, it is one example, taking certain vitamins is another example, starting to do certain exercises. Like, I don't even know within this 120 day window, what are a couple of examples of things I need to start doing to prepare my body? And what does he need to start doing? But I'm, I'm open to things. I'm open to uh, taking more stuff. <laughs> I think because I just don't, you know, I just yes. I talk to God and I'm good. I don't know. You know I, I, just... I love that so much. I love that you talk to God and you're good. And I want you to keep doing that. I want you to do that now. I want you to do that when you're pregnant. I want you to do that when you're preparing for giving birth and when you're nursing and when you're super babies here and you're, you're deciding on the best way to raise him or her and that will guide you so well. And because of that, you will be protected from all of the opinions coming at you. And I think that's really critical. And the other thing is, I think that one of the most beautiful parts of primestering and the primester protocol is that you don't have to tell each other because I tell you, and then you, you've made a decision Mm. that you're going to trust in the science and the guidance that you're receiving. And you're just going to take the steps that feel right for you. And you're not going to take the steps that don't feel right for Mm. you. And then you don't have to take responsibility and you don't have to take responsibility and you can walk together in that trusting. So I think that that's really helpful too. And so when you ask, well, what are three things that people can do? So I think that when it comes to our fertility, so we, we, we think of our fertility as a complex network. It is a complex network, like the neural network in the brain. Our fertility isn't just our eggs or our sperm or what's happening in our ovaries or our uterus or our hormone balance. It really is. I mean, our most important fertility organ is the brain and nobody tells us this. And so it's really important that when we think of fertility, the first thing that people think of is what we call the bioecological level of fertility. We use a fertility pyramid. So that's some, those are things like what supplement should I take? What should I eat? Uh, what do I do if my hormones aren't balanced? What if? What do I do if I've received a particular type of 
fertility related diagnosis like polycystic ovarian syndrome or diminished ovarian reserve. So that's a hugely important part of the fertility system, but it's so much more than that. So yes, we provide guidance about core nutrients that everyone will want to have when they're primestering and they're pregnant and they're postpartum. And then we also provide guidance on nutrients, micronutrients and macronutrients. So both food and supplementation for specific cases that are very common like polycystic ovarian syndrome, I just mentioned PCOS, which is one of the most common fertility conditions like endometriosis, like fibroids, like uh, hormonal imbalances, including low estradiol, low progesterone. If someone has a short cycle, meaning that then when, when people hear cycle, they think, I mean, the days of their period. But what I really mean is a full cycle from the first day of the period until the day before the period starts again, that's a full cycle. And when people start, one of the first signs of reproductive aging for many people is that their cycle, their full cycle will start to get shorter and shorter. You might see it go down by a day or two. And when that starts to happen, the luteal phase is what's usually getting shorter. Sometimes the follicular phase, the first half, but usually it's the luteal phase, which is the second half, which means that it can be harder for a a fertilized egg to implant in the uterine lining and for that to be sustained and to grow as a pregnancy. So these are common cases and also just accelerated reproductive aging because we are not only waiting longer to have our to meet our person, have our children because of the world we live in today, but also we are seeing the reproductive system age much faster. So in in general, a woman in her 20s is considered less fertile today than our grandmother's generation at the age of 35. Let's put this in context. Our, gran- our grandmother's generation only lived to the age of 59. So our grandmother's generation was staying fertile so much longer in her lifespan. So her reproductive span was was so much longer relative to her lifespan. We're living much longer today, but we are aging. Our fertility is aging much more rapidly today on average. And we, so today, compared to our, our grandmother's generation, which only lived until 59, but was considered more fertile at the age of 35, an American woman, a woman living in the United States of America, which is where we live, is on average will live to the age of, well, actually last year it was 81. It declined by a full year in the past year, likely due to COVID. So on average, 80 years old, but is seeing diminished fertility already in 20s, 30s, and and in, in the 40s as well. And so it's really important for us to be aware of this. And this has to do with that mismatch between the world that we live in and our reproductive biology. And so this is, again, why I said it's partly a remembering and it's partly a learning a new way. 
In today's world, one thing has become abundantly clear, and that is as a collective and as individuals, we could really be well served by learning how to manage our stress. In fact, according to the American Psychological Association, chronic stress is linked to the six leading causes of death. That's how serious it is. So as we see the world changing around us, it's more important than ever, in my opinion, that we learn how to adapt to stress. And one of the most important molecules in the world to help the body and mind alleviate and deal with stress is magnesium. Now, most people think stress is caused by things like work, traffic, tense relationships, politics, and all that stuff. So they focus on solutions like meditation, going to the spa, going to the gym, trying to chill out. I'm a fan of most of those things. But what if the root cause of much of the stress we experience has to do with the deficiency in magnesium? Magnesium is the body's master mineral. It's so powerful that it helps to regulate over 300 critical reactions in the body, including detoxification, fat metabolism, energy, stress, and even digestion is influenced by the presence of magnesium. So if there's one mineral you should make sure to include in your diet, it's magnesium. And it's very difficult to get an adequate level of magnesium in your diet due to the depletion of this mineral in our soils, etc. So that's why I'm really excited to tell you about a new magnesium product called Magnesium Breakthrough. It's the ultimate magnesium supplement, easily the best I've ever seen or experienced in all my years of geeking out on this stuff. It's got seven forms of magnesium, which is unheard of. So if you're ready to check it out, here's what you do. Go to buyoptimizers.com luke. And once you get there, the product you're looking for is Magnesium Breakthrough. If you use the code LUKE10, you'll save 10%, but you can also save up to 40% off select packages of Magnesium Breakthrough. So again, go to buyoptimizers.com slash LUKE. That's B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S, buyoptimizers.com slash LUKE. I kind of wanted to go down Allison's road and like, okay, so let's talk about like things to do. But before that, I think it would be useful for people to get an overview of some of the most common misconceptions around fertility, right? Like I've heard you define infertility and it's kind of a term that's just thrown around, but the way people use it isn't actually factual. So maybe you could just give us some of the myths there to give us the good news after the the news that you just gave us of like, we're, we're we're tanking in our reproductive ability, but at the same time, perhaps because there's an industry built around this and it's monetized and incentivized by that in some ways that many women uh, and couples are led to believe that they are infertile and therefore like it's just over for them. So break some of that down. This is so important. I'm I'm so glad you're bringing this up, Luke. Thank you. So I want to say that it is, it is scientifically documented that fertility is declining for both males and females. And if we had studies in all genders, we could probably say all genders, but we don't really have those data. So in the last 40 to 60 years, we've seen significant declines. I could spell that out more, but what's then that is the bad news. So fertility challenges are number one real and number two, very common. However, there's something really important to understand, which is that there's a big difference between fertility challenges and true infertility. 
And you you hear all these statistics being thrown around. One in eight couples are infertile. And if you actually look at the scientific data, which is what I'm trained to do, then you know that up to 16% of couples are experiencing and fertility challenges and they're, they're seeking fertility help. So it's even more than that, that one in eight. However, what's really important to understand is that from the perspective of human biological fact, only approximately 2% of the human population, plus or minus 1%, so 3% on the high end, are truly infertile or truly sterile. The vast majority of people who are experiencing fertility challenges are experiencing just that, challenges that are temporary and that can be overcome. They are not truly infertile. There's a statistic in in science that we use, which is called involuntary childlessness. And this is one example of what we know about what is true infertility or true sterility. So involuntary childlessness or non-voluntary childlessness is the percentage of people between the ages of 15 and 49. I know it sounds crazy to talk about 15-year-olds, but this is how we measure in science because this is a statistic that's measured all over the world not just in the United States or or in the developing world or the developed world as a whole. So you have to remember that there are different cultural norms and practices surrounding childbearing throughout the world. And in lots of places, it's not unusual to be having children at the age of 15. My mother started having children at the age of 17 when my mother passed away at 27 she was giving birth to her third and fourth children because I'm an identical twin. So, and she had already had two children. So this statistic is measured in individuals between the ages of 15 and 49 who do not have children and they do not have children and it's not by choice. So they're childless and it's not by choice. And this number is approximately 3%. And it's approximately 3% in pretty much every country that you look at it in. And that's because it more closely approximates human biological fact of sterility or true infertility. There are other similar types of data. For example, the distinction between primary quote unquote infertility and secondary infertility at the Fertility and Pregnancy Institute. We don't use the word infertility because we know that it doesn't apply to very many people in the world at all. We use the term fertility challenges, but essentially primary and secondary fertility challenges are If you want to have a baby and you're having difficulty getting or staying pregnant and you don't have any other children, or if you have already had children and you're having difficulty getting and or staying pregnant, that's secondary. Again, those data show us that only approximately 2% plus or minus 1% in every place you look in the world of people are truly sterile or truly infertile. So if people are going to use the term infertile, I want them to make sure that they're using it in the most accurate way, which means to refer to someone who is believed to be truly sterile or known to 
to be truly sterile. And if there's anyone walking around this planet thinking of themselves as infertile because they received a diagnosis of infertile, I want them to know that the overwhelming odds are that they are not truly infertile, that they are not truly sterile. We have to remember that the the term infertile started being used so commonly as a diagnosis. And diagnoses are a necessary evil of the medical system because without putting a code on someone's chart, their insurance is not likely to cover testing or treatment. That label has been attached to that person for the purpose of mobilizing resources, mobilizing testing, mobilizing treatment. It was never intended to become the way that we refer to each other out in the world and and most importantly, the way that we define ourselves. Think about how it feels to have received a diagnosis of infertile because you've been trying to get pregnant for either six months or 12 months depending on your age. And now you are walking around this earth thinking of yourself as infertile, as broken, as your body isn't working the way that it's supposed to. Your body has failed you in some way. It is so psychologically and socially damaging and it is very hard to overcome that self-definition and that self-identification. It is so hard to overcome identifying oneself in that way. So for me, it is very important that healthcare providers be clear that if they are putting infertile on someone's chart, that they are doing it for the purpose of insurance kicking in for treatment and testing and not for that person to identify themselves through that label. Super important. I mean, think about the epigenetics of belief, right? Yes. Like you tell me you can't do something, you're broken. Therefore, if I believe that strongly enough, the the physiology is going to comply with that belief or is likely or possible to do so, right? So, so if a woman's like, oh, I'm infertile, it's telling her body like, this is our truth now. It's so... so it's, it's crazy. It is so hard to overcome. And I would say that one of the biggest things that we need to do in the primester protocol is overcome that belief that the body can't do it, that the self can't do it, that the body is broken in some way. And it is magical what happens when we manage to overcome that. I'm not saying that for that fertility challenges are in someone's head. They are very real. What I'm saying is that there is this cascade that occurs within the body with our thoughts that reinforces a biology that makes it more and more difficult to get and stay pregnant. There are also intimate feedback loops between our psychology and our fertility, so much so that as our sex hormones go down, our stress hormones go up and vice versa. So the more that we are living in a state of emergency, in a state of stress, in a state of trauma, even if it's that we're being traumatized by the belief that we're quote unquote infertile, 
the more it is difficult for us to get and stay pregnant because the central nervous system is registering that information. The brain and is constantly sending messages to our bodies and to our future super babies about the availability of resources, about what the conditions are like and whether it's the right time to get pregnant, to be pregnant. Reproduction is hugely costly for human beings and especially for for female human beings because as you said not long ago men in a way get to just be the donor the rest of the rest of the work happens within within the female body so that's incredibly incredibly costly from an evolutionary perspective and our brains evolve to be so incredibly wise and to prioritize our safety and our survival above and beyond everything else. So if our brains are registering the message that it's not safe, that we're under threat, that there are not enough resources, our brain is going to send that signal to the body and to our future super babies. And I like to refer to our super babies as our seventh sense. And the reason why I refer to them as our seventh sense is because they've been with us our entire lives. They have been with us since we were a 20 week old fetus in our mother's womb. That means, you know, sadly in a way that my super babies were in my mother's womb with me Mm. and experienced all of her distress with me, but also they know me better than anyone in the entire world. They know me better than anything in the entire world. They know the tendencies in my thought patterns. They know the tendencies in my psychological hygiene. They know the tendencies in how, what I consume. Is what that I why your kids are your greatest teachers? Because oh my they gosh. know you that well. They kn- they know you better than anything or anyone. Uh, your your super baby who you are going to have knows you better than Luke. Right. Which is hard to believe and imagine, but is true. And so we want to we want to remember that they're there like eavesdropping. They're there watching. They're there taking all the messages and signals. It doesn't mean that we have to be perfect. But we, but we want to remember that they're getting the message that this is a good time. This isn't a good time. It's safe here. It's mm. not safe here. Mm. And if we are living in a state of fight or flight of chronic mm. stress and chronic emergency, they're experiencing that right along with us. And our brain is sending the signal, body, super babies. This isn't a good time. And there are not enough resources. The only little thing I'll share with that is that is exactly why I have been so hesitant and just staying dialed into my body and God, because I just, I don't want any extraneous noise to unconsciously or consciously start to affect me or weigh into this sacred process. All that you just explained is why I haven't spoken to anyone about it. So anyways. Yes. Well, and I want to say you can always change your mind and not share. Right. You don't have to share. In fact, I share, I have shared when I've been prime going all in on my prime minister. I always live prime minister life. I would say 90 
95%. We just spent a month in Mexico where we swam in chlorine every day. I drank water that wasn't nearly the quality I, I prefer. I'm used to. We ate food that wasn't organic, even though they tried to accommodate us when I never eat out and I only eat organic food. Some of what I drank was from plastic. I even drank coffee from plastic. I mean, <laughs> things I would never do. And so if we had, were going to have our fourth super baby in March coming up, we would have conceived her and I'm fairly certain she'll be a her. I already know her name and everything. We would have conceived her two weeks ago. And at that time when all my signals, which I'll teach you how to collect data on your body so that you know all the signals and you can go for it. All my, when all my signals turned positive and I I, I, I normally wouldn't say this even in front of a man, but in, in my cervical fluid, which is the queen's signal, I call the queen of all body data, was positive. And there was even more than there normally is. And I always have plentiful cervical fluid, which is a good sign. And I thought, oh my gosh, maybe I should just convince my hubby, like, let's just do it. You know, I can convince him in this moment. I'm sure he'll, he'll want to do it, you know? But then I thought to myself, but I'm so out of my trimester life. And those are kind of the more superficial aspects of trimester life. But I felt I was so out of my trimester life in a way that I never am, that in good conscience, I, I didn't want to do mm -hmm. that to her or for her. And so I was like, okay, we'll, we'll revisit this at this time next year if we want her to be born in March, or maybe we'll have her at some other time of year if we decide, maybe we'll go for September this time around. But the the point is that these these things are constantly shaping our epigenome because it's not fixed. And so just because I live trimester life 90%, 95% of the way all the time doesn't mean that one month, especially the month right up leading up to conception doesn't matter. It does mm. just, it's the same thing for your longevity, right? You can't just because you did years of, of pouring into your longevity doesn't mean that you can stop pouring into your longevity at any point, right? Because it's the same epigenetic process. Our reproductive longevity and our, our overall longevity are actually intimately tied to one another, which is something that we can talk about if you're interested in. But uh, so I have shared my trimester when I'm going to go all in, in case I convince my hubby that we should have another super baby. But when I'm, when I'm trimestering and I'm in my early pregnancy, I don't, I don't share. That is the sacred time. It's mine. It's mine to experience how I wish and in the emotional state that I want to be. I was already dealing with the life of being on the tenure track and being a tenured young woman of color, the first in history to be hired on the tenure track in the school where I started at USC. That was, that was enough of emotional burden I carried into all of my trimesters and throughout all of my pregnancies. And, and I, I didn't, I didn't need to add to that. So you can always change your mind and do this as privately as you want to mm -hmm. do it. And even if you don't, you are a powerful being and you can insulate yourself even when you are sharing publicly. And I highly recommend doing that. Mm -hmm. I do. Mm -hmm. Through, throughout your trimester, throughout your pregnancy, and throughout raising your children, 
I don't listen to anybody about how I should raise my children. I do not. Boom. <laughs> Great. I like I re- it. I like the piece about kind of the negative affirmations, right? Yes. That if our, and I'm assuming this is true somewhat for the male in the equation too. I mean, I'm just thinking about myself and when I'm in a limbic system, dominant fight or flight paranoia about having a baby and it has to be this way and like, ah, and all that, yes. like hanging on and controlling Yes. on a spiritual or psychological level, that's, that's imprinting on Allison and on the baby that she's potentially going to create. Right. So it's 100%. like on the, on the energetics of it is a whole other level I think is really important to be aware of. And as Allison sh- said, I mean, I've, yeah, from time to time, like, oh, listen to this podcast or this or that. She's like, no, no, I don't want to know anything. And I'm like, what? Yeah. We got to learn about this stuff. She's yeah. like, I don't want anyone putting anything in my head, basically, yes. that I might not be able to get out. Yeah. Something that that wouldn't serve her, you yes. know? And, and the, I, I don't know that the same is true for me because I'm just taking in so much information all the time and just constantly filtering out what doesn't fit. But, uh, or even like, you know, I, we were in the car and, um, you know, I, on my podcast, I interviewed a dear sister who has had um, a hospital birth and also a complete wild birth, 100% wild birth. So she is, she knows both avenues. And, um, you know, and then just within our community, there are plenty of people that have also had both. And it's like, I, I'm not even gonna try, like, I'm, I can tell I'm not even at the place at all where I can tune in or access what feels right for me right now, because we're not even actively, yes. I'm not even f- officially in the trimester yet. Cause yes. I don't even know what your protocol <laughs> is, <laughs> which FYI, gonna, we need to get going on it. If it's 120 master. days, yes. we need to get her going. Yes, exactly. I would vote for longer. Yeah. But that's well, I, well, we can start with 120 days and yeah, we, yeah, we can go from there. But, um, I agree with you. And you know what? You won't know until you know you're there yeah. and then you'll know. And then who cares what anybody else thinks? And I, you know, I, I, when I was doing my dissertation, I was my, my early mid twenties and I went, I, I, I felt, okay, we know what the, we have all the science and the protocol already, but there's something more, there's something more that we haven't captured with the science. So I went to study with a kundalini prenatal yoga teacher named Gurmuk. And I started to learn with her. And when I when I started to learn with her, and to this day, you can see infusions of what I've what I've learned and what I've trained in in the primester protocol. And as I was learning, I saw beautiful examples of, of home water births or even water births and bodies of water, like the Black Sea. And I thought for sure, I'm going to have water births with my super babies. And then my husband was like, oh no, no, no. I don't, I don't, I don't like that idea. (laughs) I think you should give birth in the hospital like everybody else. And I really didn't want to, but I also wanted to honor his desire to know that we would be in a place where he had never experienced this before, where I would be safe and his child would be safe. And we had a beautiful hospital birth. And when it came time for super baby number two, 
he was open to a water birth because he saw everything was fine. No big deal. We could do this. And then I was like, well, actually, I'm going to give birth again with ROB at Cedars where I had, I gave birth the last time because I had such a beautiful birth. I'm going to birth again in the way that I know now know to birth. And my second birth was a dream birth. I got to the hospital an hour before she was born. My doctor almost didn't get there in time. This beautiful nurse who was the most perfect nurse for me, the right amount of love and firm. And she was just so perfect for me was there with me and she was preparing briskly to catch the baby on her own because she didn't know if the doctor was going to get there in time. And my super baby girl came out on the first push purring, like just like so satisfied with herself. And she was smelled so good and she was so soft and she had this long hair and she was just like, everything was perfect. And so then when it was time for super baby number three, I'm like, I'm doing that again. And it was a completely different birth that I haven't talked about very much. He came a little bit early. I had a very traumatic experience at USC with a very severe discrimination. And I'd been studying for decades how discrimination can lead to preterm birth and in women of color. And there I was becoming a statistic and it was so traumatizing for me. And I've never talked about this before in public. And there was a team of experts in the room waiting for my super baby when he came out because there were any number of things that could be wrong with him and they had to be there to be ready. And he came out and it was, you know, here I am thinking, I'm just going to have my hubby, the doctor and the nurse. And hopefully it's the same nurse as the last time in a dark room with my meditations and my music. And then there are nine strangers standing there while I'm about to push out my super baby, whom I'm so excited to meet and yet terrified because there are any number of things and I'm a scientist and I know all the number of things that can be wrong. So excited and terrified. And I say to myself, don't look at them. Don't think about anything. You just focus right here, tunnel vision. He's going to be perfect. And this baby is so super that even though he's early and this team of people is here. He comes out and they're like, there's nothing wrong. He's full size. He looks everything like, are you sure you didn't get her due date wrong? Mm -hmm. And he's perfect. And everything is perfect. Thank God. We don't need anybody. No, we get to leave with before 24 hours, like nothing as if he came out on the second push, everything was perfect. And I really credit the, all we do pouring in before to having that outcome, which was so unlikely. And so, you know, there are so many things that can happen in a birth. And yet almost every single time, everything is okay. Mm. And that's the thing that I want you to remember. And that's the part of the remembering that I, that I was talking about earlier, that the body knows, and it's very rare that things are not okay. And that's the thing that I want you to remember. You won't know until you're pregnant and you won't even know until it's almost time to give birth 
how you want to birth. And I didn't know until I had the first one that I would continue to go to the hospital to give birth with my OB, whom I'd come to be comfortable birthing with, who is really hands-off and just lets me do my thing. And now, because we'll be living in a new place, if I have another, which I'm hoping we will have another super baby, I'll probably have the home water birth that I always wanted Mm -hmm. because I won't be birthing with the same person Mm -hmm. and in the same way anyway. And so you, you just, you just don't know until you experience it and you don't, it doesn't matter what anybody else's opinion is because you get to have a beautiful birth, whether you decide to give birth in the hospital, whether you decide to give birth in a birthing center, whether you decide to give birth at home or you decide to give birth at home with only Luke there and, and no assistance whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And I will say that I think that wild birth on a first birth is, is a really interesting concept that wouldn't fit most people. One of my favorite books, I would say my second favorite book is The Red Tent. And in The Red Tent, they talk about you know, how long ago women used to all bleed together at, at under a certain phase of the moon because we weren't affected by hormonal birth control and all the things, right? And it was a time of rest. And not only did women bleed together, but when they birthed, they birthed together and how it was sad to be among the wealthy in the moment that you were giving birth. Because when you were among the wealthy, you were in a home that was closed in and no one could hear your cries. No one could hear your, your, your cries for support. Hmm. But everyone else, they live so close together and the homes weren't insulated. When a woman goes into labor, everyone hears and all the women come out to support her and be with her. And obviously it's a very different world we live in today. And we're all wealthy enough that we have homes where we could be crying and no one would hear us. Right. But the, what is, what is still present today is that most women, when they're birthing, want this want support and comfort and want support and comfort from other women. Mm -hmm. So that may not be the case for you. You'll know when you're pregnant, if you want to give birth by yourself with just Luke there, or if you at least want the support and comfort of another woman whom you never feel judged by, whom you never compare yourself to, who never looks at you funny, who never says the wrong thing. I have kicked nurses out of my birthing room because of how they've talked to me or looked at me. Because we can't have people in our birth who cause us stress because when then we have an adrenaline response and that actually slows the mm. birth process, just like it slows the conception process. Because when we lived out among the animals, if we were being chased by an animal, our adrenaline spiking, well, the brain gets the signal. It's not the time to stop and give birth right now. You got to keep moving. The same sort of thing is happening 
And the brain and body are interpreting it in the same way Mm. when we have someone in our birthing room who stresses us out. So you don't want to have your mom there or your mother-in-law there just because you're supposed to. You don't want to have your sister there just because you're supposed to, or your, your best friend there just because you're supposed to, if they in any way cause a stress response in you. You want someone who you don't owe anything. It's their, their presence is, is gentle, supportive. You don't have any reactivity to them. That's what you want in your birthing room. It's a very helpful tip. If you decide to have anyone at all there. I love your balanced, open-minded, wise approach. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing all that. That cleared up a lot, I think, for so many people listening, especially people that are kind of in the debate of the black and white. It has to be this way or that way. And there's no gray area or middle ground. It sounds like there's just almost an infinite a number of ways that this can happen for it's people. It's all gray. It yeah. is all gray because in pregnancy and in birthing and as in parenting, there aren't right or wrong answers. I mean, in the extreme, there, there are some right and wrong answers, but for the most part, it's what's right for us, what's my truth, what's right in the conditions and circumstances and with the resources that I have available to me and, and, and what's right is what's right for you because mm-hmm. a happy, calm, grounded, peaceful mama, just like the woman I'm looking at right now today, and you can continue to be her no matter what's flying around you. And there'll be a lot flying around you and, and some of it will get in, but you can continue to be her. And that is the most powerful and healthy and important thing for your super baby and your super baby's epigenome and for the health of your conception, the health of your pregnancy, the health of your birth, your ability to nurse for as long as you want and and having the most amazing child you could imagine having. Mm. It's true. It's true. That's nice. Good stuff. <laughs> have so many thoughts and feelings going on right now. I um, have them too. I but I, I'm getting such super baby fever. I always I always have it, and we've been having a boom because you know for so long I did this work. I worked with two or three dozen couples or mamas one on one, and not that many people knew about the trimester. And in the last two years. It's been amazing. I always, it was my, always my dream to get the trimester to everyone I could on the planet. And now we're on six continents in 23 plus countries. The part that I didn't fully anticipate or comprehend was what would happen to my soul when the frequency of this, we have a new pregnancy test, positive pregnancy test. We have a new super baby, like Here's a new ultras. The frequency mm. of that has grown exponentially. And I could not have anticipated what it would be like. I heard you say on a podcast, I've been listening to you, and heard you say what a privilege it's been in your life to get to live a life that, that does more good than harm. I think those were the words you used. And I, I understood you so deeply. I I never ever thought I would do harm anywhere, but to 
have the the ability to do that much good mm. that in the world that like we're having this incredible super baby boom this summer, I think, because just the num the sheer number of people who now trimester and there's not a moment when the appreciation and awe doesn't dawn on mm-hmm. me. Like I still cry every time tears of joy jump up. It doesn't matter if we get them five, 10 times in a day there, this, this won't, this feeling will never become less for me. It is just so, so I feel it too. I always have super baby fever for myself (laughs) and for everybody else, but sitting here, I I feel it so much too. Well, with that, I want to get a little more tactical. Let's do that. Uh, there's a, a number of things in terms of the trimester or just the preparation before conception that I just intuitively have a sense would be a good idea. Yeah. And I want to run a few of them by you, see if they're in your protocol. Do it. And I'm thinking of like, if I just had my way and I could do everything exactly how I think it should be done, mm-hmm. um, maybe I'll go through them one by one so it's not too overwhelming. But the first order of business or one of them to me would be, well, for both parties really, but because I'm already doing all this stuff and I've been doing it for a long time, I think I would just keep doing what I'm doing. Um, and again, not that Allison's sitting around smoking cigarettes, eating McDonald's, but <laughs> she feels good and has energy. So she just lives her life. Like, I, it takes did a have lot to put- ch- I did have Chick-fil-A last night. <laughs> I didn't, and I didn't say anything. I was <laughs> like, oh, you got lie. Chick-fil-A, honey. And she's like, yeah, it's delicious. I was like, great. And inside I'm like, no. <laughs> <laughs> it was good. That's hilarious. But I don't know the order of them, but it seems like one of the first things to tackle with me would be uh, lab testing for things like glyphosate, heavy metals, uh, uh, you know, gut biome testing for parasites, dysbiosis, et cetera. And then detoxing things that you find that you don't want to be there by whatever protocol is most appropriate. But it seems like kind of seeing where you are biomarker wise and cleaning out anything that's jacked up and then rebuilding, you know, what was perhaps in an imbalance, which could include, uh, I'm assuming like hormone testing, doing something to correct those if you're estrogen dominant or some of the other problems that could happen. But maybe some of that would just be worked out if someone's like, hey, I've been living, you know, in an industrialized nation for X amount of years. Let me just see what's going on, clear things out. Would that be one of the first things or even part of your protocol? So first of all, I love this. This is so awesome. And I I would say yes and no. And here's why. Because the trimester protocol is going to address all of that anyway. If you are somebody who's going to be totally freaked out by what you learn, because mm. you're going to learn that there are things in there that you don't want to be in there, because that's the case for all of us, no matter how clean we live. I know that to be true. Yes. I did a metals test like five years ago. And I was like, what? Yeah. <laughs> I've been detoxing for 20 years. You it, know? One, it's 100%. I'm the same. I'm like, you. if you are going to be freaked out and psychologically impacted by what you learn about what's in there, what's not in there, your what hormones are doing well, which ones aren't then I say, don't start there because that's not a, that's not a great place to start. 
psychologically. And we think of the psychosexual level of the fertility system or the fertility pyramid, as we call it, as being foundational. It is the most important foundation. So anything that is going to throw us off on the psychosexual level of the pyramid, we don't, we don't really need to focus on that. We're not, we're not being in denial in any way. We're just being wise about what's true for us. And we also know that 99% of what you would do to address what you learn, we're already going to do in the, in the primester protocol. That makes sense. That so, makes sense. So yeah, so you can, or you, it depends on who you are. Right. Like for me, if I was the woman, I could get all the testing done. It wouldn't freak me out at all. I would just be like, oh, I can totally fix this. Yes. <laughs> and then I would just fix it. Yeah. You know what I mean? But I would want to know just because I think I would want to fine tune my yes. my strategy and my my tactics for fixing whatever it is. I would want to, oh, okay, lead. I know what to do for lead versus just like do a general metals detox thinking, well, I probably have some metals. I don't want to know what they are. Yes. I'm just going to do a detox. But if I found something specific, I would probably go a million different ways to sort it out, but yes. that, that makes a lot of sense. I'm like you, Luke. I'm like you. I'm, I'm always testing. I'm always checking. I'm always, I'm always experimenting and tweaking. And for people like you, we do have one-on-one services that are that additional level of precision in creating those epigenetic modifications. They're not they are not necessary. They are for people who really want to be able to go as far as they could possibly take it and see what their current biochemistry is. So that's the lab part of it and testing part of it. And then also to to know their genes. So we map out their genomic data and we give them very high level tweaks based on their unique genome because we each have our, we have our own genome and we have the genome that we're always going to have. So that never changes. So I'm like you and I go, I go to that level, but it's not necessary to go to that level to have your super baby, whether you're experiencing fertility challenges or you're doing your primestering to optimize. So essentially if you're someone that's not intrigued or interested in, intrigued by or interested in knowing all the details or you're someone that could potentially get freaked out and yes. that would actually yeah. damage your chances of having a super baby you could just jump right into doing all the right stuff yes basically and have yes. the same outcome exactly so yep. would the right stuff include just hey let's just do you know a, a solid detox or let's start let's just take probiotics even though we haven't looked at the gut or do we do a parasite cleanse or you know, like what, yes. what are the kind of foundational things that one would do at the outset to start preparing for that? So I'm like, you're, you're like our, a dream, you know, a dream to work with because of your, because of your questioning and because of your knowledge. So one of the things that we teach people is that our microbiome is our second genome. And so it is so critically important for our fertility and for the epigenetic foundation that we're passing on to our super babies and our super grandbabies. It's one of the reasons why a vaginal birth is ideal because a lot of our microbiome is picked up in not only in utero and in the primester, but also in the act of going through the birth canal. And a lot of that 
is missed in a cesarean birth. Now, if someone needs a cesarean, if if there hadn't been such thing as C-section, I wouldn't be alive today because I would have died with my mother. My twin sister and I would have died with our mother. And so when when we hear like C-section is bad and and vaginal birth is good. We have to remember it, it depends, right? Like we were saying, there are all these gray areas, but what we do know is that if we can go through the birth canal, we want to, because it's actually really good for our second genome, our microbiome, and has long-term lifelong health implications. We know that babies born via C-section are more likely to have a number of different health conditions as adults, including more likely to be obese. And we think that it has to do with the lack of exposure to the microbiome, uh, at least partly due to that. So I just wanted to point that out. Yeah. So the well, mic- and also uh, for those listening that end up having C-sections, now many doctors know that you can swab yes. the vaginal canal, right? Yes. And then inoculate essentially and seed the biome of a baby, which is huge. I mean, imagine how many babies were born. My two brothers are born C-section. Yes. I, I doubt at that time they were like, oh, hang on, let's swab the baby, you know? They didn't. They yeah. didn't. And most still don't, but that's something that that you can request or basically do yourself, you know? And and you and the same thing happens when we when we nurse, when we not only breastfeed, because you can pump milk and feed from a bottle, which if that's the only way you can do it because your baby can't latch or you're at work, then that's perfect too. But there, there's an additional benefit of the baby actually being on the breast to the microbiome. There are also other uh, benefits, including brain development and crossing the hemispheres, which is one of the reasons why even if you, you aren't able to breastfeed, you're a baby, you want to make sure you don't always feed on the same side, which we tend to do because we, you know, we have a dominant hand, but you want to make sure to alternate the side you're feeding your baby on just like you would if you were breastfeeding. And uh, even when breastfeeding, you you might find that you have a, a breast that is like the producer breast, which is the one that provides most of the food. And the other one is kind of more like the pacifier. It doesn't have as much milk. <laughs> so when your baby's hungry, you, you might tend to put your baby on the one that's more of the producer side, but you, but it's, you want to remember to, to That's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't know that. So with the, so with the microbiome, Mm -hmm. if, if the mother lacks biodiversity and Mm -hmm. she has, you know, a finite number of strains of, of bacteria and say the baby's born naturally vaginal birth, that baby's immune system and whole biome is only going to be seeded with whatever diversity the mother has. That's right. So it's a good idea for the mother to be increasing diversity by eating, you know, probiotics and fermented foods and resistant starch or whatever they're doing to like really get a robust gut life going on. 100%. So we want one of the things we focus on in the primester is increasing the richness and diversity of the microbiome and for that purpose for our for the sake of our fertility we consider digestion to be the mother of fertility so nobody ever talks about that no 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 one ever says you've been having difficulty getting 
and or staying pregnant, how's your digestion? That That's a huge area of focus for us. So we focus on it for overcoming fertility challenges, but we also focus on it for the sake of making our super babies, right? So it's we we have what we call the fertile food pyramid. It's very different from the standard food pyramid, as you can I imagine. So. <laughs> yes, and that's it, what got us here in the first yes, place. That damn food pyramid. Exactly. Well, that that is so true. So today we have these epidemics of obesity, metabolic dysfunction, type two diabetes, type three diabetes, which is Alzheimer's. And in my work, I've shown that there's a type F diabetes, F for fertility, the same underlying constellation of root causes and symptoms that show up as type three diabetes in, or type two diabetes in around the the fourth decade of life and type three diabetes around the sixth decade of life already start showing up as fertility challenges as early as the teens, but in at least in the second and third decades of life, they all have the same root causes. Does this have to do with insulin resistance and that whole thing? Yes, Uh. absolutely. And so that that's a part that's a part of it and it's a big part of it. So that's another piece of the trimester protocol is ensuring the stabilization of blood sugar and insulin increasing insulin sensitivity, decreasing insulin resistance. All of this is a part of it. And so you 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 saw, talked about how the standard food pyramid got us here and it is true that these epidemics were set in motion decades ago in our parents' trimester and our grandparents' trimester. And they will continue and continue to worsen just like what we've seen with for type F diabetes, fertility challenges, and what scientists predict for fertility challenges, which is some scientists predict that within 30 years, the vast majority of couples will need some form of intervention in order to be able to get pregnant. That's crazy. And so we, it is our opportunity to intercept these processes that were set in motion. And we have so much power to do that during that magical and malleable and powerful window of opportunity that is the trimester whether we're expecting to have fertility challenges or not. Like I don't, I wouldn't get pregnant without primestering because I understand what it means for, not just for my own longevity, but for that of my children and my grandchildren. And I want to make sure that I leave the most positive imprint on their, their genome on their epigenome and also on this planet that I possibly can. So yes, that was a long way of saying, yes, we are really focused on the microbiome and on increasing the richness and diversity through the use of the fertile food pyramid. So that does include things like eating uh, leafy greens, that includes eating probiotic foods, that includes eating prebiotic foods, resistant starches are among them. That includes supplementing with different strains of prebiotics. If we if we're if we're okay with testing, then we do the prime labs and we we do a DNA-based stool test and other kinds of testing to see what kinds of strains 
are plentiful, what kinds of strains are lacking so that we can be really targeted in the strains of, of bacteria that were friendly bacteria that we're introducing because these, these things really matter. Wow. Badass. Yeah, it's fun. It's what awesome. Ab- what about the mitochondria? As I understand, mitochondria is passed down on the maternal side, just from mom, from grandma, et cetera. It, uh, you're up, absolutely up right. Up the line. If one's, uh, if, if the mother's mitochondrial function is in less than optimal shape, is what you do in the primester, is that built into repairing that or at least you know getting that to the most optimal level so that that baby then has the most robust mitochondria it can so good so good this is so important so this is a huge uh focus of the primester protocol along with boosting um dna repair cellular repair autophagy, all of these things are really important. So we know that the mitochondria are passed down from the mom. We know that the mitochondria are the powerhouses of the cell. And it's really important, especially if we're experiencing fertility challenges, that we do everything that we can to boost our mitochondrial function. And in both in both people, providing DNA for our super babies, but especially in, in the mamas, this is hugely important. We want to do this to overcome fertility challenges. We want to do this to overcome reproductive aging to help to slow and reverse reproductive aging, just in the same way we would want to do this to help to slow and reverse our aging process, right? If, if we think of the mitochondria as uh, like our cell phone battery and when when we when our cell phone is new and we we plug it in and it charges all the way up really quickly and the charge lasts a long time and as our phone gets older and older we see that it doesn't charge as quickly it doesn't hold the charge for as long a similar process occurs in the human aging process and so we want to do everything that we can to be supporting our mitochondrial function for the sake of having those that tremendous amount of resources that we need to have to funnel to getting and staying pregnant and then also to growing and birthing and breastfeeding and sustaining another human being. It's critically important. Is mitochondrial dysfunction one of the common root causes of fertility issues? I would say so. I mean, this this is, I I think of this as a little bit of a, controversial statement in the sense that the data are clear that this is an important aspect of our reproductive function and reproductive health, but it's not easy to assess mitochondrial function in the average person. So to be able to say to someone, your fertility challenges are likely due to poor mitochondrial function, it is that's a hard thing to be able to say what's what's not hard to say is that we, if we can do everything that we can to optimize mitochondrial function that is going to be supportive and beneficial for your fertility got it makes yeah. sense yeah um going back to the very beginning of the conversation where we were talking about the way that we've done things thus far, right? Yeah. And, you know, pre-industrial revolution or even agricultural revolution, everyone was doing great. Some babies died, some moms died, but we didn't need all these interventions, but we live in a different time now. Yes. One of the things about our modern world that 
is seems to be so mismatched to our biology. Well, there's two really, they're kind of in the same category, but one, and I'm sure my audience knows what I'm going to say, drum roll, <laughs> EMF. I was going to say, I think I know. Like, <laughs> I mean, it's just, to me, it's always the elephant in the room. Everyone's arguing about whether we should eat legumes or not. I'm like, dude, you're sleeping next to a Wi-Fi router, yeah. like eat whatever. Yes. But, uh, and also blue light, non-native yes. light, another form of, of EMF really. So for the first time ever over the past couple hundred years, I guess with the advent of electricity and now, you know, all of the things, um, we're not living in a, in an energetically natural environment. It's extremely non-native and unnatural. What impact do you think this has? Like say, um, uh, a mother's, um, circadian biology, right? She's, watching TV till two in the morning under bright lights. I'm not talking about Allison. She goes, <laughs> she goes to bed early like a normal person. I'm the one up late at night with my red glasses on. Yes. But you know what I'm saying? So totally. that woman's uh, gut biome, mitochondria, everything's going to be jacked up because of circadian biology mismatch. Mm-hmm. There, we're not living with the sun. Let's just say it like 100%. that, right? So would it be supportive for um, a mother in the trimester or during pregnancy to you know, follow circadian biology and mimic the sun by going to bed at a certain time, waking up or, you know, blocking blue light in their life. And what about the exposure of EMF of someone living next to a cell tower or working in an office full of Wi-Fi routers, mm-hmm. et cetera, or keeping their cell phone and their, you know, yeah. bra or whatever, yes. you know what I mean? I may see women do that. I'm like, don't yes. say anything, Luke. They didn't ask yes. your opinion. <laughs> The, my moral, you know, yeah. conflict. I'm in Home Depot going like, oh my God, she's pregnant. And like, I can see her cell phone right in her hip pocket, you know, like, yeah. shut up, not your business. Yeah. It's their karma. Yeah. So what's your take on kind of the blue light and EMF things yes. as a potential way to, you know, improve the success? This is a huge part of the mismatch between our modern world and our reproductive biology. And I've actually written an article for Mind Body Green about this. And I talk about how sperm count has declined by more than 50% in the developed world. We don't have enough data on the developing world to say for sure if it applies there. And this is in the past four decades, sperm count has declined by more than 50% in the developed world. And we, we don't have... We don't know for sure what accounts for that, but the the suspects are these things that have to do with this mismatch between our modern world and our reproductive biology. It's really important to take data in context because it's easy to sensationalize data. It's easy to use them in the wrong way. It's easy to blow them out of proportion. It's easy to not look at them in a very nuanced way. In in the same way that I said, yes, there are all these statistics out there. One in eight couples experience quote unquote infertility. 16% of couples are are using some form of assisted reproduction or in medical intervention for fertility. But you have to look at data in a careful and nuanced way, which is how I can tell you that approximately 3% of people are truly sterile or truly infertile. I want, I want to use that same nuanced and careful and objective lens when we talk about what we're seeing in terms of these drastic declines in male and female fertility, male fertility in the last 40 years and female fertility in about the last 60 years. And what I want people to know is that even with this 
rap, this huge and rapid decline, this decline of 50% in over 50% in four decades, sperm count is still within normal range, according to the World Health Organization. Now, a couple of things to take this nuanced view even further. Number one, this is in the general population. This is not in the population of people experiencing fertility challenges. So that has to be a massive wake-up call for us. Number two, if that rate of decline continued, the average sperm count would very quickly fall out of normal range. So I just want to make sure that we contextualize all of this because it's really easy to sensationalize a statistic like that. And I don't want people to hear that and be so afraid. And yet I want people to hear that and understand this is important to stop and pay attention to that this is happening. So and, and the distinction between correlation and causation too, right? 100%. Because I can look at data and be like, oh, fertility went down or, or, or uh, sperm count went down in men on such and such date. That's when cell phones came out. Yes. Right? And, and maybe yes. there's a correlation, but you can't yes. unequivocally prove in many cases that it was causation. Like you can point to that as being the thing, right? It's oftentimes many contributing factors and a cascade of of consequences that come after that were really at the root cause. 100%. And that's exactly why I said that we don't know for sure what the cause is because we, we, in order to have true causation, to be able to say this X causes Y, you have to conduct a true experiment, including random assignment. What that means is you would have to randomly assign some men to being exposed to blue light all day long and some men to not and see if there was a difference in their sperm count. You'd have to randomly assign men to living next to a cell tower and men to completely living off off the grid in a way and see the difference. In the absence of that, you can't say that one thing causes another. What you can say is there does seem to be a correlation that as one goes up, the other goes up, or as one goes up, the other goes down. And so we, we believe that these factors are related to this change, but we can't say that for sure. And I will say that, you know, EMF is there, there's not a lot of research to, we, we do think that cell phone usage and especially proximity to the male reproductive organs, it, when, when guys carry their phones around in their pockets, are is part of the the what's contributing to declines in sperm count but we don't we don't know that for sure and there aren't really studies on EMFs and fertility this is not something that that is well studied i would say in the scientific world this is probably considered very controversial and the way that we treat this in the primester protocol is that it it cannot hurt to protect yourself as much as possible. We just don't know. We know that this is one of the changes that has co-occurred or coincided with these changes in fertility. And so we 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 want to protect ourselves to the extent possible. I will say that I'm a scientist and 
there's not enough data to turn to, to be able to say anything definitively. And when I see my children put a device on their bodies, I completely freak out. Like the rule is if you're going to be on a device, it is not on your body. Like I do, I, I do not want to see my like precious human beings who are carrying other precious human beings with them already in their ovaries and in their testicles. I do not want to see them having devices on their bodies. And if, if it were up to me, I would love for them to not ever be on devices. And so I will say that. Uh, we now light, that's a different story. We, it's very clear. The circadian rhythm has been grossly disrupted by our exposure to all the, these different lights, to blue lights, to being on devices. We know that melatonin plays a very important role in our fertility and that melatonin is disrupted by these exposures. And so as much as possible, we want people to, to live and eat and sleep in accordance with their circadian rhythm. That is going to always be so huge for fertility and also for longevity. I mean, not sleeping and being exposed to light is, you could be eating beautifully and your blood sugar is going to be all over the place. And we know that blood sugar has a direct impact on fertility, has a direct impact on egg quality and our hormonal balance. I mean, we cannot get around this. We cannot exercise our way out of this. We cannot green juice our way out of this. This huh. is really serious. We cannot IVF our way out of this, by the way. And I think this is a really important thing to say. I was born in the year that the first IVF baby was born, which I think is so appropriate because I think that IVF is one of the most important advances of the last half century. Most people assume that because we have a protocol that doesn't require medical intervention, doesn't require testing, if you don't want it, you can have it. If you want to know what your genomic data are, we're the nerds who will give it to you and tell you exactly what your genome says you should eat so that you have the best epigenome and exactly what your hormones need based on your genes. We can give you all that, but you don't have to have it to have amazing ignited fertility even in your 40s, and you don't need to have it in order to have your super baby. I like it. I think it's awesome. I, I've done it for my my super babies because I'm optimizing as much as I can for their life. I did it before when I primestered. I did it in pregnancy, and I'm doing it as I'm raising them. But you don't have to have it. But it's really important to know that we have this power to continue to shape our epigenome. And again, that this, the expression of our genes impacts our fertility in the immediate sense, but also is inherited across generations. And so when it comes to something like deciding whether you're going to use medical intervention, you're going to use IVF, or you're going to conceive naturally, most people would assume that because we can do everything that we do naturally, that we're, we don't, we're not supportive of IVF. And that's actually not true. There are many people who 
benefit from doing IVF. And there are a lot of things that are really amazing about doing IVF. For example, I keep telling my hubby, like, maybe we'll decide to have another wave of super babies in 10 to 15 years. Well, even with my amazing fertility, I'm not going to count on being able to conceive naturally in 10 to 15 years. I might be able to. I don't know. The oldest verified natural conception was to a 59-year-old woman. And I don't see any reason why I can't do that. But (laughs) if I'm serious about that goal, about that desire, I won't leave that to chance. If, if, if he buys into it, which he thinks I'm completely crazy because in 20 years, he'll be 70 years old. And he's like, I'm not going to be like waking up at night with an infant. I want to just be like chilling somewhere, you know, (laughs) but I, but I also think like, what's more fun, more meaningful, more awesome than raising these amazing humans. Like to me, there's nothing better in the world. So If I want to do that, then what I'm going to do is go and freeze embryos for later so that we have that option to have another wave of super babies in 10 to 15 years. That wouldn't be possible without IVF. And there are a lot of people who have diminished ovarian reserve. We work with them to be able to bring their ovarian reserve, their, their AMH level up, their egg quality, improve it. And I I say, do you want to have, what size family do you want to have? It might be a good idea to freeze embryos now so that you don't have to rush and have your children back to back, which comes with its own set of potential issues. Take your time so that you're physiologically healed, you're psychologically ready, and then you, you can space your children how you want to. So there are many reasons why I think that IVF is an amazing option for people. And I'm so thankful that it it exists. And I think that people have the belief that if they are going to use IVF, either because they've been told they have to, or because they want to, for whatever reason, they want to test their their embryos and make sure they end up with a, a healthy baby or whatever it may be. They think that IVF is the solution. And I always say you cannot outsource your fertility. That is your work to do in the trimester because even if you're going to use IVF, all IVF can do is prompt your body to produce as many eggs as possible and then retrieve, go in and retrieve all of those eggs, fertilize them, and then and then put them in the right conditions to develop. But if none of those eggs are healthy, if none of those eggs fertilize, if none of those eggs, fertilized eggs become embryos, if none of those embryos test as being chromosomally normal, you're left with nothing. You won't, you won't be able to transfer anything. There's no baby there. IVF cannot give you a chromosomally normal embryo. It can just make sure you don't transfer any embryos that are not chromosomally normal. That's our work to do in the trimester. I get a lot of people who come and they they have resources and they just want to let the money take care of it, but that's not how fertility works. Just like that's not how longevity works. So just like I said, we can't green juice our way out of not living in accordance with our circadian rhythm. We cannot green juice or even IVF our way out of having 
to do the work to make sure that our raw material, our eggs and our sperm, and also our uterus are as healthy as they possibly can be. That's our work to do. It will always be, no matter how how plentiful our resources. Wow, good information. I, I do nothing about any of that. <laughs> I was just like, okay, mm-hmm. I'm learning a lot today. Let's do a check-in with this beautiful mama here. I'm just learning and I I want to, you know, because especially because it's his show and... Um, it's our show, dearie. Please well, chime in anytime. This is so exciting for me to, to be here with the yeah. two of you, so... Yeah, he, you know, he nerds out on mitochondrial stuff yeah. and and I and I like to I like to learn. I everything you said is new information, so I'm definitely receiving, but in my mind I'm like, let's talk about sex rituals. Let's talk about ceremonial tantric. You know, what do we do? Let's do it. Let's do it. I'm let's do it. I'm right, I'm right there with you cuz I I was like reviewing my notes. I'm like, "All right, is there anything that I really really wanted to to cover on here?" And and then I got to uh where was it? I was like, "What are your thoughts around conscious conception?" Yeah, I love it. <laughs> yeah. Mine was a bit more tame than Allison's like, "How do you have the hot tantric super baby?" Yeah. But but that's it's a really good point. I mean, so I think good for most of my life, I didn't find the spiritual value in sexuality and definitely never thought of it like, Ooh, maybe the whole point of this is to usher in the highest soul possible by the degree of love that you're sharing with the person you're conceiving with. I mean, those are all very new concepts, but as I've evolved over the past few years, hopefully I'm still evolving. Um, (laughs) I see that as a, maybe it's Allison too, uh, to some degree as a mysterious part of it and kind of like, oh yeah, there's that part. Cause I'm kind of jumping to stuff we've already talked about. And there's just such a vast um, amount of wisdom there to, to get a grip on. But yeah. What about the actual energetics of of, of the time you have sex when you conceive, you know, how, how do we make that more meaningful, special, amazing magic, uh, and epic in every way? I love this question so much. So first of all, in other languages, there are sayings to the effect of when you see someone and they're remarkable in some way, especially if they're remarkably beautiful, just cause that's the thing that we can see, right. That you, that you say, wow, your parents must have really been in love when they made you. And I think that we have this understanding that that matters a lot, that how how much we love each other when we're creating our children really becomes reflected in their soul in some way. And I, you know, I think a lot about how it's interesting because I've, I've listened to you say how in love you are with this beautiful human being. And wow, she's easy to be in love with. I mean, I can so feel that I, when the moment I saw her today and how being that in love with her was the thing that made you want to have a child. I I think if I'm remembering that correctly, that you didn't necessarily want to have a child before. And it was in falling in love that you wanted to have a child. And, and I had kind of the opposite experience. I I'm like obsessed with super babies. I have been all of my life. Like since I can remember since literally since the age of five or six, I've known that reproduction is the most important thing in the world. And I, I stayed, I, I didn't 
partner. I waited a long time because I was, I was in it. I was doing the work. I wasn't, I wasn't out dating and having fun in the same way that most young people are. I was, I was in the lab doing the research and, and applying it in the world. And I used to go to Mexico for vacation by myself every year. I started doing that when I was in grad school and I would end up at these resorts where I was the only single person and all couples and families. And, and I would look around and I would think, I want that. I, I, I feel I'm supposed to want that. And I do, I really want that. I want to have children. I want to have a family, but that doesn't look very fun. Like they, they just don't look like they're having that much fun together. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I didn't, I didn't necessarily mean the children, but I meant the couple. And so I always wanted to get married because I wanted to have a family, but I wasn't totally convinced that the partnership part was very fun. I, I thought that it looked like it, I didn't have an example Uh, of it. My dad was single and he, was very popular with the ladies. Let's just put it that way. And so I, I felt that it looked a little bit suffocating. It didn't look joyful. And so I was excited to have a family, but I wasn't that excited about the marriage part of it, but I wasn't, I, I was going to get married to have my family. And when I met my hubby, I knew he was the person because I wanted to hang out with him just to be with him. It wasn't that he, I wanted to be with him to have children. I would have wanted to hang out with him even if we weren't having children. Mm -hmm. And that's how I knew that he was the person to have my family Mm -hmm. with, that he was the person to spend my life with. And I'm so thankful I made the right choice. I mean, raising a child, raising children, raising a family with someone whom you love being with and whom you really like is a revelation. And I get a very up close and personal view of what it's like to raise children with someone who you don't get along with very well through the work that I do. And it's not fun. Mm -hmm. It's really hard. So I think that that is so huge. So this saying it, it, I think it does reflect reality to some degree that the, the, the love and friendship and kindness and desire between two people does seem to become reflected in the souls of their children. And when I look at my super babies, the thing that dawns on me is that I, I knew that this partnership was life-changing for me, but I didn't realize that my partnership with my husband would be life-changing for the world because we would bring these amazing humans into the world who would do such amazing things in the world and, and be such an amazing presence in the world. And they are. And that's really powerful to see your love ripple out mm. in that way. And it feels really, really good. And it shows you how our love and our and conception, our fertility, and our families are so deeply personal, but they are so deeply communal as well. And so I think that that is very powerful. So getting into the, like, what do we do? So I think I, 
I, I had never really thought about ritual as being part of the primester protocol. And yet it's only a difference in language because so much of what we do in the primester is ritual. Our, the ritual for how we take care of our mouths because of how connected our mouths are to our reproductive organs, mm-hmm. especially as women or our uterus and our, our vulva and our vagina and the way there are ritual rituals around our digestion because of the microbiome being the second genome and because when we can't process and extract nutrients and we have all of these nutri- nutritional deficiencies but despite having plenty of body fat or being outside of the fertile zone in BMI which is a thing you there is a fertile zone for BMI and being below it and above it makes it hard, or above it makes it harder to get and stay pregnant, especially being below it even more than being above it. So all we have all of these rituals, but I would say that there are two rituals that are I, I would really love to highlight. And then there's a like a, a a family ritual that I would love to highlight from the Primester Protocol. So the first is one of the the foundational things that I love to do with a couple when I first start working with them or when they start their primester, which is to get quiet and listen to their own truth by asking them to each independently write down the answer to three questions. And we don't share the answers until the end because we don't want the the answers of one person to influence the the answers of the other. So the first question is, what is it that I need right now in order to be able to have my super baby. The second question is, what is it that my partner needs right now in order for us to be able to have our super baby? The third question is, what is it that our super baby needs from us right now in order to join us? And I don't know if either of you wants to share maybe something that came up for you But what I know for a fact now, after 25 years and thousands and thousands of people, is that the kinds of things, does does anybody want to share something or should I keep going? Of those, of those, of the inquiry? Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. When I thought about what Allison needs, immediately came to rest safety, feminine energy and fluidity and just freedom to just be and chill. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. So good. And did you have anything in your answer for yourself that overlapped with Luke? Um, uh, I mean, yeah, I guess it was around, yeah, nourishment and yeah, nest, nest energy. And, you know, 
the same answer that came in for both myself and when I was asking what Luke needed. So we need to get into our home. You know, we need to, we've been renovating and like, I mean, that's just an obvious given is that, you know, I think for both of us until we get into our actual house and the renovations are done and we can truly put some roots down, I don't think either one of us feel energetically, physically, mentally, emotionally ready to really um, activate this this next step. So the home thing, and yeah, and him just getting um, some of the the business stuff squared away, and like uh, my my answers for him went more into like the financial business security. Whereas I guess his answer for mine went more into like the feminine flow security that, that I know I'm safe to be in that space for myself. I love this so much because this is exact. That's why I asked if you wanted to share because I knew you were going to say the words I was going to say because the words that come up almost without fail are things like safety, security, rest, play, fun deeper connection. And it's not a surprise because remember the most fundamental aspect of our fertility, which nobody ever tells us about or talks about is that our brain and body and seventh sense are super babies who we're carrying around with us, register security and safety and sufficient resources. Mm -hmm. And so these are always among the things that we need and that and it's not it's not uncommon to hear the male or male energy in the relationship if it's a same sex couple or what a non-binary couple whatever it may be that the security is more about getting finances in order and feeling like the the business is is where it needs to be right and and for the more feminine energy about having a sense of like being able to rest, not having to hold everything, not having to take care of everything, feeling safe in your physical space, feeling safe in your intimacy. And then also, especially when there are fertility challenges present where there, where connection and, and sex has become so mechanical for the outcome of the baby that to, to feel that deep spiritual connection in intimacy and in sex, what you were talking about, uh, that evolution for you and feeling a sense of fun and play and, and excitement. Like when you first started dating and when, when it was new to be with each other. Right. And so that didn't come up for you all because that's not relevant to you, but this is something that comes up frequently in our couples who have been, you know, we work with couples who have been trying to get pregnant for months, years, a decade, up to two decades. So in in that case, they feel like they've been having a lot of sex and it's become really <laughs> mechanical um, and goal oriented right. and it's not for, mm. for the hmm. experience of connecting with one another. So, so th- I would say that 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 is a foundational ritual. And then when it comes to sex, that we know that historically it was believed that female orgasm was necessary for conception. So we all know that 
sperm are necessary for conception. And so essentially male orgasm that lead to the release of sperm are needed for conception. It's unfortunate we no longer believe that female orgasm is needed for conception because there's not nearly as much of a focus on female orgasm. And it's true also in the scientific literature. It's not something that's given priority to be studied, but we know that there are a number of things that happen with female orgasm. One of the things is that our most important fertility organ, our brain becomes deactivated in good ways. It's during orgasm is the only time that the social judgment part of the brain goes quiet in mm. women, which if you think about it, that is completely wow, exhausting, is that true? Oh completely God. exhausting that we are constantly oh, walking rough. around as females, judging ourselves, judging other people, judging the world around us. It's exhausting. I mean, I think we're known for being the most non-judgmental space in the world, our FPI village. I think of myself, it's, I think of that as a reflection of me, but even I, I'm sure if they hooked me up, would find that as well. So that's number one. Also, the other parts of the brain that go quiet are the parts that are involved in our internal alarm system, the mm. amygdala that's involved in our fight or flight. So that's one thing, the things that happen in the brain, but then there are things that happen down below as well. For example, when, when women have orgasms, it creates these very strong uterine contractions, which women may or may not be aware of. If you're really connected to your body, you probably feel these uterine contractions that happen with orgasm. There are some women who are really disconnected from their core and from their pleasure and they, and they don't feel that and they're not aware of it. But whether we feel it or not, it's happening. So one of the things that's so important about this fertile cervical fluid is that it helps to propel the sperm forward toward the egg. And when we have these uterine contractions, when we experience orgasm as women, we don't know this for scientific fact, but we believe that it helps to propel the sperm forward on those microscopic superhighways created by our fertile cervical fluid. And there is a small study that shows that women who orgasm regularly during heterosexual intercourse get pregnant more quickly. Now, one thing that's really important to note is that a lot of women don't orgasm during heterosexual intercourse because most women orgasm and orgasm most strongly from the clitoris. And depending on how your unique body is, the clitoris for many women is too far from the vaginal opening to be activated during or engaged during heterosexual intercourse. So a lot of women don't orgasm during heterosexual intercourse and they, they, they've been taught that they should, that they, that there's something wrong with them if they don't. And actually it's just the way that our bodies are designed. The women who tend to tend to have a, a clitoris that's closer to the vaginal opening. So one of the things that we love to encourage because our physical pleasure and specifically orgasm is our most direct pathway out of 
fight or flight and Mm. sympathetic activation and into our parasympathetic, which is where our rest and digest and reproduce reproduction occurs is to have as many orgasms as you love and to not worry about them happening during intercourse, but to actually use them proactively after intercourse while you're in this 30 minute resting period that we love for you to have while you're just chilling out. Maybe your legs are up on the wall or maybe they're however you're comfortable so that you're letting gravity work for you. And then you also are experiencing all of these delicious orgasms that are helping to propel the sperm forward on your microscopic superhighways created by your fertile cervical fluid. And we, however, that's comfortable for you. So every woman is different. Some women are really uncomfortable with their own physical bodies and their own physical pleasure. And, and they don't want anyone there. So they want to have orgasms by themselves, or maybe they're so uncomfortable with that. So they want their partner there. However, it's comfortable for, for you, for an individual woman. We, that's what we recommend. We support you really diving into and pouring into your own physical pleasure. And that is such a beautiful energy from which to make our super babies. This sounds like fun. I'm ready to go. All right. (laughs) I love it. I'm ferning already. I can feel the ferning happening. I love that the kind of the closing topic is Allison and all the ladies listening need more orgasms. Yes. 100%. I I support this cause. It's also great for immune function, detoxification, like everything, all the good stuff. It's we, Mm. we want, we want you to have more orgasms and to feel really like you're worthy of them and comfortable with your own body that Mm -hmm. God gave you. I love it. That's a really good tip. Thank you. Yeah. Do you have one more quick one or or like there was a family one that you were going to mention? Yes. So the third ritual I would, and I'd love to leave you with this is that as a family, you create a family vision. So this is something that my husband and I started doing in our first year of marriage. And and we now every year we do a workshop, a free workshop, just as a service to encourage all of our families to do it. And on that, in that workshop, we do two parts. We create a family vision board and then we create a family vision blueprint, which is like a family vision statement, but it's very detailed. So I highly recommend, especially when you're primestering and you're you're making your super baby to come together and to create a, a physical representation of the family you're becoming. Who's there? The two of you and your super baby, or if your complete family is four super babies, like like mine is, then you're all there. Where are you living? What's your environment life like? What are your days like? And having a document that is very detailed and specific and speaks into all of the senses, because the more it calls in all of the senses, the more real it is. And I jump on a rebounder every day, which is another thing we love to do for the lymph and the, and other things in the primester protocol. And I listen to my, I, I have read that family vision statement or blueprint 
And I listen to myself reading it while I'm doing that so that it's like really becoming oh, wow. embedded in my cool. cells and in my DNA. That's very cool. That's so a good idea. I, I would love to see you all create your family vision board for your super baby. And then once, even once your super baby's here, have the ritual every year of creating a family vision board together. And as they get older, they can start to contribute to the things they want to be on it. Our, our super babies do now too. And it's so powerful. And I know you guys are incredible manifestors because you've manifested a, a beautiful life that is very intentional and deliberate. So I know you would be doing this in your way already. And what I see for us is that we, every year we achieve more and more of what's on that family vision board. Like our life looks more and more like what we have set out for ourselves. And it's powerful. Mm. It's powerful to show your children at such an early age that they can do that. Everything that we create, including our super babies, we create three times. We create first in our thoughts, then in our words, and then in our reality. And so you're, you're doing this ritual so that you're teaching them that you're bringing them in through that and teaching them that it's been so powerful for us. And I would say in terms of my relationship with my hubby, it ensures that we, we have, we have a shared vision for our family and ourselves every year and that we're growing in the same direction and at the same pace. We would always mm. grow in the same direction, but one of us is has to stop and think a little bit longer than the other. I'm like, let's go. And he's still thinking about it. I'm like, I'm down the road. <laughs> so, so I think that that has been so vital in ensuring that we are growing and evolving at the same pace. It's really beautiful. Mm. Wow. Love that. Um, yeah, I'm open to all of that and I'm excited. And I'm also glad that I decided to, you know, officially be a part of this conversation. And, and thank you for creating such a beautiful, inviting, um, safe, sacred space to talk about all of this. It was a really beautiful voyage for me. And I learned a lot. Feel so more prepared. So yeah. did I. Thank you for coming. And I hope that everyone in the audience did. So uh, for those listening, know that you can get the show notes for everything we talked about here at lukestory.com slash Cleopatra. lukestory.com slash Cleopatra. I'm starting to do that these days because people often message me like, where can I find that one episode? So I think if I tell people where they can find it now listening, uh, for those that are still with us two plus hours in, who are, I always say at the end of the show, if you're still listening, man, you're a diehard. Like, you dedicated. I love you. I love you. This show is for you. Yeah. Because I could, I could go forever. Honestly, like, totally. someone t- brought a burger in here, I'd be like, let's go another two hours. You know? I'm but, with um, you. I can yeah. talk about this for, I mean, you know, yeah. a dream. Well, thank you for your passion. And yes, thank I, you. I did, never got the sense that you're going looking at your watch like, when's this over? You're mm-hmm. like, you can go hard. And I love people like that. So totally, thank you. totally. Yeah, thank you. And there's so many things, um, God, so many things I learned also just about you and your approach to work, like the bit with Gurmook. Yeah. And like going into that side of it, I would have not guessed that. Which yeah. Which is really interesting. The one thing I want to ask you, there's two things actually. One was you mentioned your second favorite book being The Red Tent. What's your first favorite book? Number one is The Alchemist. Uh, yes. And I had it in my purse the night I went on uh, my first date with my hubby, Jair. And because I reread it at least once a year. And so I was rereading it at that time. And 
he saw it in my purse and he said, that's my favorite book too. And so when we decided to get married, I have a huge family and I really wanted our wedding to be about us. So we decided to get married by ourselves, which is a big deal in Egyptian culture. It's like not done. And uh, we we planned our wedding moon, as we call it, our, our, our wedding and our honeymoon. And we followed the path of the boy Santiago in the book. So we got married in Southern Spain and then we went into Africa and it was really magical. Wow. That's epic. Yeah. Yes. That's so cool. I love that. We got to think of a book, babe. <laughs> we got to get married too. That's the other thing. I was talking to someone the other day and they were asking about, you know, well, when are you going to have a baby? When are you going to get married? I was like, yeah, we're working on it. We got to get in this damn house. Like, I'm just thinking that's all I got in yes. my mind. And then uh, the, this person goes, well, you're going to get married first, right? You don't want to have a bastard. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, I mean, I thought, I just kind of think in a linear way. So I thought, well, yeah, I get the house, get married, have a baby. But it was funny. It was funny that it was put like that. And I thought, you know what? There is something, I don't know, for me inside, there is something to be said for, even though I don't know about like getting married according to the government of the United States of America, like not so much on the legal side, but just to- The union. We have been spiritually married and a TP, FYI, but- we were. But legally (laughs) on paper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Having the the inclusion of our loved ones, essentially. That's a big deal. And we didn't do that. I mean, we actually, I actually purposefully didn't do that. And uh, it, it was, I think it lets people feel, it leaves people feeling excluded. And we, we had the plan that we were going to renew our vows every year and we'd have a party and invite people. And we, we've been so busy having super babies. We haven't (laughs) renewed our vows once, but I think we, we will soon. That's something that we're coming up on nine years and we'll probably do it next year. And you're, you're a super baby. will never be a bastard. There's no such thing as a baby being created so deliberately and intentionally with so much love and care being, I'm, I mean, I also wanted to have a family within the context of marriage, uh, which is why I said, like, I, I always planned to get married for having the children. I just didn't know if the union part would be that fun. I'm very happy to say my union part gets to be amazing and, and it, and it's reflected in the children. So I understand that wanting to do the marriage, but I also think that your intentional way of being together and creating your super baby is so powerful. And, you know, if the party comes another day, that's fine too. Totally is. Mm -hmm. All right. My very last question is, and this is a quick one, uh, who are three teachers or teachings that have influenced your work that you might share with us? Gosh. So number one would be Gurmukh. She's been such an important teacher in my life. And I, I've had some of the world's best teachers because I've been at some of the world's best institutions. So it'd be really hard to narrow down academic teachers. But I would say that Dr. James Jackson, who really created the field of studying the health of people of color in the United States and recently passed away and, and, was the mentor to generations of people, scientists of color, the the world's best scientists of color, including myself. So Gurmukh, uh, Dr. James Jackson, and 
I would say the third person is probably Deepak Chopra. Nice. Great. Well, thank you so much. Mm-hmm. I know you have a zillion websites and we'll put them all because <laughs> the, I've heard you say them and I'm like, oh my God, how am I going to remember that? Again, you guys can find the show notes for everything she's about to say at lukestory.com. She looks like she's going to say something though. We only have one website. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, it's fertilitypregnancy.org. Okay, much easier than I thought. I mean, yeah. you you would find me on like USC and, you you know, okay. so many places, but... You have one central place for people exactly. to go. Exactly, okay, fertilitypregnancy.org. Okay. And we have an amazing checklist there to help people get started in their trimester. It's free. They can download it there. So yes, visit fertilitypregnancy.org. Okay, cool. That's your whole hub. That's <laughs> yeah. so easy. Thank exactly. You. Cookie's ready to be a big yes. sister. Yay, Yay Cookie. Hi, Cookie. <laughs> You're so cute. Yay. Oh, thank you. Oh, God. She's, been a, she's been a good girl. This she, is a long day. I was going to say, she's back been back so, yeah. She's a good dog. And she's been all chill and happy. Thank you. Oh, my goodness. I wish, I wish I had a video of she's this. My kids lover. would be. So they've been asking for a dog so oh. much lately oh, I, I think when we get to portugal we might get one because yeah. they are really asking mm, for one. Yeah. Oh my god if they she's saw a this. sweetie puppies are the best. luckily we got a good mommy here she yes. brought cookies food otherwise cookie would not be, yes would yeah not be she would not have been happy All right. sitting here i know mom that's, mama needs some food too that's a wrap <laughs> ladies thank you so much What an inspiring episode, right? Alice and I really fell in love with Dr. C during our time together, and uh, her heart and energy is just so contagious. And one of the big scores for me is when I interview someone and they have the scientific prowess and knowledge where they can really drop that, but also the love. You know, the brain and the heart combine that coherence, I think, is just so special when you find that in one person. And Dr. C definitely delivered that. And it was obviously a very meaningful interview for both Allison and myself as we explore the possibility of a family in our near future. I want to remind you, as I mentioned earlier, that Dr. C has been so kind to offer you listeners a $300 discount for anyone interested in taking her course, The Primester Protocol. You can find that by visiting fertilitypregnancy.org and using the code LUKE300. That's fertilitypregnancy.org. And again, the code is LUKE300. You can also find the episode show notes at lukestory.com slash Cleopatra. For those of you that want to dig in and, uh, you know, read the transcripts, get links that were mentioned, et cetera, that's where you can do it. I'm doing my best to really clue you guys into the show notes, which you can also find on some podcast apps. So remember that if you poke around in your podcast player, depending on which one you use, you can often find all of the links and things like discount codes and even links to the transcripts and all that jazz in there. But for those of you that want to find it on a website, that's where you can get it. Okay, here's the deal with next week's episode. It's a super powerful deep dive with Dr. Matt Cook that was recorded on a recent trip to his clinic, BioReset Medical in San Jose, California, where he injected me with all kinds of crazy stuff all over my body. It was awesome. That's number 379. It's all about the latest cutting edge treatments for Lyme, mold, and autoimmune. So if you or someone you know has suffered from issues like this, I highly encourage you to tune in next Tuesday. He's one of the world's foremost experts on finding solutions for these super tricky and all too common conditions. So again, you know, if you're a Lyme, mold person, autoimmune, next week's episode is going to blow your freaking mind. He is so badass. So I'm really excited to share that and have people in my life 
currently and in the past that have had issues with those things. And it's just brutal. It's just brutal. Like no one has answers. What do you do? Google, like what to do if you're exposed to mold? Like it's, it's hard. It's hard. People spend a lot of money trying different things. A lot of it doesn't work. If you go into the medical system, well, you know, there might be temporary band-aids, but as of yet, I've not heard of someone going to a local hospital with Lyme and coming out without it. You know what I'm saying? So Dr. Matt Cook delivers the goods next week. So I want to close by thanking you for listening. And uh, remember, again, that you can find the show notes for this episode at lukestory.com slash Cleopatra. And with that, I'll bid you farewell. And I'll be back next week with Dr. Matt Cook. 